fool, the fortune. Good morning. Please take your seats. In the matter of Société des Casinos du Québec, Incorporated, versus Association des Cadres de la Société des Casinos du Québec, and between the Attorney General of Quebec and the Association des Cadres de la Société des Casinos du Québec, for the appellant Jean Leduc and Camille Grimard. For the appellant Attorney General of Quebec, Michel Deum, Samuel Chaillet, Caroline Renaud, Gabriel Saint-Martin, Daudelin. For the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, Sean Godet, and Kirk Shannon. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Savitri Gordian, and Rochelle Fox. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Michael P. Wall, and Leah M. McDaniel. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Counsel to Employers, Timothy Lawson, and Miriam Lefrancois. For the respondent, Association des Cadres de la Société des Casinos du Québec, Sophie Cloutier and Jean-Luc Dufour. For the intervener, National Police Commissioned Officers Professional Association, Andrew Montague, Reinholt, Melanie Vijay Kumar. For the intervener, Canadian Labour Congress, Stephen M. Barrett, and Colleen Bauman. For the interveners, Ontario Principals Council et al., Caroline V. Jones and Lauren Pierce. For the intervener, Public Service Alliance of Canada, Andrew Astridis, and Morgan Rowe. For the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Catherine Fan, and Danielle Glatt. For the intervener, Syndicat Professionnel des Ingenieurs d'Hydro-Québec Incorporated, Claude Tardif, Catherine Massé-Lacoste, and Marie-Laurence Lamar. For the interveners, Association des Cadres des Collèges du Québec et all, Pierre Brun, Michel Gilbert, and Guillaume Grenier. For the intervener, Canadian Lawyers for International Human Rights, May J. Nam, Rebecca Jones, and James Yap. For the intervener, Tribunal Administratif du Travail, Geneviève Bond-Roussel. Mr. Leduc. Good morning, everyone. The question of the exclusion of managers from the Labour Code runs against freedom of association protect, as protected by the Charter. That is the issue before the court. But the real question, what the court has to decide technically, to my mind, is should managers in general, or people who are not covered by a collective uh, bargaining system, 
because we're talking about freedom of association in a very specific context here. Could I just ask you to lower your microphone first? Is that better, Justice? Yes. Okay. With the plexiglass, it's kind of hard to hear one another. So, should people who aren't covered by a collective bargaining system, are they able to fully exercise their right to freedom of association? Or should they have the benefit of some kind of scheme? That's basically what this case is all about. This is what the managers in the case of Barr are seeking. Because everywhere else, people can exercise their freedom of association as against their employer, whether it's a public sector or a private sector employer, like in Dunmore. So employees can normally assert their freedom of association, but beyond that, beyond what's in the first paragraph of Saskatchewan, which gives an exhaustive definition of the state of things when it comes to freedom of association. So do managers, including the managers at the casino corporation, should they have state protection? Should they be able to ask the state to entitle them to this type of regulatory or legislative scheme? And in this case, in paragraph Two, it says clearly that the association sought access to the general labor relations scheme. Yes, but council, I think they say further on in their factum, they say the opposite really. They say they just don't want the exclusion to apply to them. So it seems that they're saying both things and they're contradictory. Well, if they're saying that the exclusion shouldn't apply, they're basically asking for inclusion. But you have to be aware of the fact also that when the association made that claim, this was not long after Dunmore, and there was a real chance that if the association won, they would either benefit from the labor code or a suspension of the finding of unconstitutionality for as long as it took the legislature to come up with a new legislative scheme that would apply to them. So in either case, what is sought, the relief sought, is state protection, access to a labor relations scheme, whether it's under the labor code or some other scheme. The labor code, that's what they got, that's what the, the tribunal decided. Do you have the Court of Appeal decision handy? Because the Court of Appeal reformulated the questions at bar, and they did that in paragraph 137 in two ways. And I'd like to know, because I, I took note of the point you just made, it all goes back to the application for accreditation, and if you read the conclusion on that application, as you said so clearly, what was being sought was access to the code's protections. But if you look at paragraph 137, the first formulation, 
I wonder if that's not perhaps more useful for us. Does the scheme deny employees adequate protection in order to create uh, interference? In other words, if you deprive someone of protection that they're entitled to and that the charter requires, as opposed to the other formulation, does the legislation interfere? And that's the problem you raised. Is there a distinction to be drawn? Well, I don't necessarily agree with the way the Court of Appeal put it. The only thing that managers are being denied is access to the labor code. There's no law, including the labor code, that limits the manager's exercise of their freedom of association. There is no legislation in, that in any way, shape or form limits the manager's freedom of association as protected by the Canadian and Quebec charters. So managers have their right, uh, their freedom of association, and they can exercise it however they wish. There's no legislation that limits that. So it's hard to say that the labor code, the freedom of association is not a leg has its roots are not in, in, in statute. So I don't see how the legislation in question deprives everyone, anyone of, uh, of their freedom of association, but it does deprive them of access to a scheme that could govern their labor relations. That doesn't mean there's no remedy. There's section 49 of the charter, for example, and the evidence showed that there are a number of other associations of managers who do have remedies available to them. Absolutely. So if the association is seeking access to a specific labor relations scheme, what do we make of that? Well, that's what they're asking for, either access to the labor code or, and the Court of Appeal dealt with this, if the provision is unconstitutional, then there can be a stay to give the legislature time to react. All we're saying here is that managers are entitled to the state's protection. So managers have the freedom of association. You say there are remedies available, but those have never been exercised. So the labor relations scheme that was being sought with the accreditation application was the labor code the specific scheme under the labor code, nothing else. Well, the interference, the alleged interference is the exclusion from the, the, the labor code so, and all the protections that come with it. That's uh, the basis of the interference argument. And I don't think it's enough to say that there is no exclusion of freedom of association under any other law, uh, it's, that's the protection that the, the legislature gave workers under the labor code. The labor code is that protection, so I think it needs to be more nuanced. It's not enough to just say no other legislation excludes the association. Well, the distinction I would draw is this, and I think it's important 
when you ask the question, what is the framework for analysis here? Here, and in paragraph 20 of Bayer, the court found that there was a negative uh, requirement on the state, not a positive requirement. And what the association is seeking here is protection or assistance from the state. The association wants access to a labor relations scheme. And if it's not under the labor code, it has to be under something else. But the goal is to have access to a collective bargaining regime or scheme. And if the court were to agree, managers have a quasi-constitutional protection. Uh, they have their freedom of association that they can invoke, but that's not enough. There has to be, if it's not the code, something like the code that protects them and gives them state protection in the full expression of their freedom of association. Okay, well, when it comes to the framework of analysis, according to you, that would be done more when it comes to freedom of association? Yes, absolutely. And with the consequences that flow from that in terms of thresholds. When you look at Bayer, Bayer was subsequent to Dunmore. So when you look at the sequence, they said that Section 2, the state only has a general obligation, just a, a, and must refrain from doing anything negative. And I always understood that Section 2 was a shield that was supposed to protect people against actions of the state. But then the court found in Bayer that there might be situations where the court had a positive duty to do something to protect people. In Dunmore, the court said in some situations, exceptional situations, the state should act to protect or assist. And in Dunmore, I think that's the first time it was applied the court said that yes, even though agricultural workers do not have a labor relations protection, they're excluded from the labor code. But this is an exceptional case where the legislature has to intervene to give these people some protection. So those people at the time, it was impossible, maybe that was an exaggeration, but it if it's impossible, then the state does have to intervene to provide some protection. So there was the creation or recognition of a positive requirement on the state to help or to protect people who were excluded from a labor relations scheme. In Bayer, that analytical framework was refined it didn't begin with freedom of association. It wasn't initially about workers who are excluded from a labor relations scheme. In Bayer, when the framework was analyzed, and there was, this is sort of explains how we got to where we are today. The court was addressing the Dunmore test uh, and the positive versus negative claims and this was done uh, indistinct in, in in an indistinct way 
So it wasn't 2B or 2D separately. It was all blended together. And there were some specific decisions on 2D where a distinction was made. So then the decision was to transpose what was about freedom of, of association onto freedom of expression. You talked about the Ontario regime. Could you explain the similarities between the two schemes? Well, the situation of agricultural workers in Ontario had a lot of consequences. There was a change of government and the new government did set up a scheme and then there was another change of government where the collective bargaining scheme was changed again. It was taken away from agricultural, agricultural workers and then there was a challenge to that and the court found that since there was no labor relations scheme applicable to them, they were excluded from the labor code, then it was impossible for those workers to, uh, to exercise their right. But the legislation was really different. Well, afterward, after Dunmore, the provincial parliament drafted new legislation providing for uh, a new scheme and that was challenged in Fraser. And in Fraser, the Ontario Court of Appeal went very far and it wasn't a context of positive versus negative rights or claims. It was about a piece of legislation. And the analysis in Fraser was, the finding was that the legislation did meet the parameters for freedom of association as set out by the court. And what's interesting is that in Fraser, we talked about remedies earlier, and in Fraser there was a remedy available and the court said there is a remedy if ever the employer acts in bad faith. There is a remedy available and since that hadn't been exercised, the court found that it wasn't too early to intervene. Here there's the Quebec Charter and no remedy was ever sought under the Quebec Charter. Well, I know there were a lot of factual findings made by the Labour Tribunal. Some were upheld by the Superior Court, others not but I do understand that despite all the recriminations of the association, all their criticisms of the corporation, no remedy was sought under the charter or any other means. Well, there was a contractual remedy for the... So there was a contractual remedy available for failure to negotiate and there was the charter and in Saskatchewan, it, in that decision, it sets out, sets out all the remedies available for failure to negotiate in good faith and so on. They could have gone to court and got an order. Uh, Section 49 of the Quebec Charter is quite uh, wide open and uh, it could have certainly been used to put an end to the breach. So a court could have ordered the parties to go back to the bargaining table? Yes, absolutely. But in the respondent's defense, the position of the Labour Tribunal and the Superior Court when it comes to negotiating or bargaining in good faith, the position is quite severe. They're quite severe towards the Casino Corporation, quite critical. And 
does that interference or that failure to bargain in good faith, is that not relevant here? Is that not relevant in a Dunmore analysis? Your position, because I'm, I'm reading what you've submitted, I'm trying to understand your position, I see that you're challenging a number of the findings on the extent of the interference, but when it comes to bargaining in good faith, the association was not consulted in advance. Uh, when it come, came to a number of changes in their working conditions, the salary scales weren't, weren't changed. The something about the parking being moved, uh, all those factors. Is your point that that's not interference in freedom of association, or you're saying okay, it is interference, but not serious enough? Uh. Well, first of all, when the labor tribunal analyzed the behavior of the casino corporation, it looked at the association's behavior and its contractual obligations. So, for example, when it comes to changing the, the labor conditions without consulting the workers, that's one issue. I don't think it's necessary to negotiate every change. That's a right of management. A company that is managing its uh, work is permitted to manage its operations. So I don't think that freedom of association eliminates the rights of management that allow a company to manage its company. It's important not to confuse contractual obligations and constitutional obligations. Are you saying that the Superior Court is making an error here? Because they're pretty s severe in 223. It goes beyond what you've just evoked and talks about a thinly veiled threat, saying that if the protocol were opened, it would remove rights and convince the labor tribunal that there was no substantial interference in this case. Well, what the judge says is that there are different conclusions at the labor tribunal, but of course, before the Supreme Court, I'm not going to go over all of the evidence that was uh, presented at the Labor Tribunal, but if you look at the annex of my condensed book, you'll see excerpts of uh, testimony from the former chair of the Casino Corporation. So they said, we made a donation, we met the president of Lotto Quebec. So this was... Uh, the president of uh, the Société des Loteries du Québec. And so they made concessions. They came to agreements. They didn't want it to be in a written agreement. They said it would be in the manager's manual. So once again, this has to do with the working conditions of managers. I'm not trying to tell you how to argue your case or to go back to the facts. I had understood 
that your position was that even if I had to concede that there had been interference, such as what was described by the Labour Tribunal and what was confirmed by the Superior Court in judicial review, that it should have been looked at under Section 3. And as the Chief Justice and Justice Cote said, it should have been dealt with with a remedy under Section 49, not the Labor Code. So you don't have to go into the facts. You may disagree, but do you understand what I mean? Yes, I would say three things in response, Justice Kazir. First of all, we might not be here today if there hadn't been any remedy. Before saying that there was... Uh, a problem when it comes to constitutionality. We might not find ourselves here today. Second thing, if uh, the Dunmer and Beyer tests apply, what we're saying is that when it comes to positive rights, the threshold is very high. You're saying that if we're looking at the Dunmore test, if we follow your reasoning, your position is that since it's uh, a positive right and not a negative right, the analysis could stop there. I think that uh, bring the nuances that uh, were laid out in the City of Toronto, the burden to be met would have to be radical frustration, extremely high threshold, and of course you know City of Toronto very well, since uh, some of you were there for that case. So radically frustrate, stop in reality. We don't have to prove that it makes it completely impossible. That's in paragraph 27 in Toronto. We don't have to show that it was impossible, as was stated in Dunmore. And I have one last thing to say. I'll, I'll end with this because uh, my friend has uh, to have enough time. So there's a higher threshold, radically frustrate, stop in reality, not make completely impossible, such as uh, what we saw in Dunmore. And I think that even if certain actions were taken or not taken in the context of uh, the relationship between the parties, it doesn't have the degree of seriousness that is uh, such that we need to get the state to intervene and uh, provide a protection for them to exercise uh, their freedom of association. I have a question we know that the status of manager was defined by the Labour Tribunal in 1995. Since that time, has there been any application to change uh, the status of managers? No. If we set aside uh, the Dunmer and Beyer tests, in the Court of Appeal they use the dissenting reasons in City of Toronto. Do you have any comments on that?
it seems a little doubtful to me as an approach. Well, in fact, I have to be careful what I say, but I, I am retired, so we washed our hands of that saying, they washed their hands rather of that saying, well, we don't have to say if it's a positive or a negative right. What I argue is that in the city of Toronto, the majority is aware that positive and negative rights are not always black and white. You can't say without a shadow of a doubt, this is a positive or this is a negative right. The majority is aware of that, and that is at paragraph 27, I think, or 36, rather. The majority says, even if things are not always completely black and white, when we have to decide a constitutional, decide a constitutional issue, we have to decide whether essentially we're dealing with a positive or a negative right. And what is the purpose? What is the end goal here? And I argue that the end goal is to access the protection of the state. And so, yes, it's true. Justice Abella, in her dissenting opinion, says, well, the distinction, whether it's positive or negative, is it really that useful? But after concluding that this analysis doesn't apply, in City of Toronto, we weren't dealing with a case of exclusion. So Justice Abella's analysis applies in the case of exclusion, but at the outset she concludes that this is not a case of exclusion and so the analysis doesn't apply. But in any case, it seems to me that in Canada the majority opinion is what counts the most. That's what I would argue. If I had to choose, then I would go with that, certainly. I would promise my friend that I would leave enough time. When it comes to the question of mixed fact and law, I would refer you to my factum and just add that when it comes to constitutional issues and freedom of association and labor relations, facts cannot be distinguished from the law. If we're talking about substantial interference, the facts are intrinsically linked. There's not a, an issue of credibility. It's just how we qualify the facts. And in my opinion, there shouldn't be any deference owed in this case. It would be hard to understand why such an important issue could end with the conclusion that we have to show deference. Can I ask you a question? Did I understand correctly that you're arguing that the constitutional debate is premature because we have to pursue other remedies first, that it's not necessary to decide whether the exclusion is unconstitutional in this case? that it might have to be decided in future, but it's not necessary in this particular case because it would be premature. Is that what you're arguing? I am uncomfortable saying that I could have taken that route. I think it's part of the fundamental fact 
it's possible that the association did not meet its burden of showing that it was radically frustrated in its uh, pursuit here. It is uh, possible that it hasn't met its burden of proof, but quite honestly, I can't tell you that it's completely premature to deal with the constitutional issue, but I think it is part of uh, the elements here. Now, of course, if the court decides that that is a, a fact, then I won't argue against that. Thank you. Alors, bonjour. To start with, I'd like to respond to a question posed by Justice Kazerer about uh, paragraph 37 of the Court of Appeal decision. What the Court of Appeal did was it applied the test that had been created in MPAO and applied it to managers. But it's important to remember that MPAO and health services, the court concluded that the intervention of the state to stop freedom of association constituted a substantial interference. The court rejected that despite the evidence before it because there is no evidence of a link between the exclusion of managers and the substantial interference that they are trying to demonstrate. Despite the fact that the exclusion was adopted in 1994, mm -hmm. from the beginning of the 1970s, the state has recognized the existence of managers' associations. But what about the objective of the exclusion? Because the goal was not to, to stop the freedom of association of managers. It was more in relation to the facts. Yes, but if the state recognizes associations of managers, then that is not an issue because there's a recognition of association, which is the basis of the of freedom of association. There is a mechanism in place that allows them to, to accept contributions, what we would call a, a contribution for union dues and other uh, contexts and then there's a discussion that resembles a negotiation so if, if we look at uh, all of these facts there are discussions that take place that correspond with negotiations and discussions as defined by health services and MPAO the Court of Appeal, similarly to the Labor Tribunal, 
the labor tribunal in fact looked at what they do every day so how to apply the labor code and how it applies to managers they found some gaps and then concluded that there is substantial interference I argue that the labor tribunal felt that if the mechanisms that are in the labor code are absent there can't be meaningful collective bargaining but there are two issues here first of all this is the same error that the Ontario Court of Appeal made in Fraser you'll remember that in Fraser the Ontario Court of Appeal decided that if certain specific aspects of uh, Wagner type laws were not included there would be a constitutional gap but in Fraser emphasis was put back on the process that was in place or the mechanism that allowed an association to communicate its demands to an employer your friends will respond and they actually do so in paragraph 56 of their uh, factum that it would be illusory to believe that remedies in common law would allow for acceptable solutions because of the delays every time the casino corporation does not uh, negotiate in good faith what do you have to say about that I don't know if I should raise this but I'm not sure that the case before the labor tribunal is a true example of uh, the speed at which things can be dealt with before the courts now I think in this case uh, we're used they're using the speed of uh, of, of this uh, erroneously I think today arbitration in the case of grievances can last far too long but let's take for granted that there is a timeline problem here there are two things behind that first of all the court I don't think it will never do I don't think it will ever do this but the court has already said that you need a provincial law to bring into force a constitutional right I think that poses a problem secondly if you're looking at if the efficiency of remedies that are at the disposal of the association association you have to look at the potential reparations and it would be difficult to argue that under 24-1 or 49 of the Quebec Charter there are limits to possible reparation it's the opposite those are probably the best sections that would allow further reparation if there is a violation according to a tribunal conclusion so I find it difficult to accept that argument because you have people who are attached to have a relationship with the state who are applying 24-1 it says that uh, remedies were sought that it took an eternity but in fact in this particular case no remedies were sought exactly can I come back to something to make sure I really understood your argument 
this process is protected, not necessarily the result. Is that correct? That is what we argue. And I shouldn't uh, say this as a as a crown uh, prosecutor, but in English we talk about the term meaningful process. So uh, what it means is that uh, the, the crown will recognize its interlocutor and sit down and discuss the issues. That was also confirmed in MPAO. And maybe I can finish my answer to your question, Justice Kessler. The goal is not to have a plethora of tools to reach a, an objective. I would argue that the court closed the door to that. 2D does not protect or guarantee a certain result. It guarantees a process that can lead to a specific result. Every time the efficiency or effectiveness argument comes up, every time people ask which tool is the most effective, which produces the best result, uh, which is the most efficient way of going about it, every time we get into that analysis, well, that's not what's protected by Section 2D. If there were another scheme a completely separate scheme. Well, let me ask it differently. If the exclusion that violates the Constitution, but only with respect to a certain group of managers, as in the case at Barr, if the if there were if the if the provision were struck down, but the effect were suspended if there were a stay, could the legislature maintain the exclusion but create a different scheme that would apply to managers? As your colleague mentioned, the court uh, could consider an alternative scheme. Yes, in the case at Barr, it is a fact the Court of Appeal struck down the provision solely with respect to casino managers. That looks a lot like a 24-1 remedy, I would say. But there's a, a, an underlying problem, in my view. Before getting to that point, you have to ask whether there's substantial interference. That's always the question. Was there substantial interference? And was that the result of the state intervention in its goal or, it, or in, its, in effect. Because if there's a specific player somewhere that is acting in an unconstitutional way, that's violating constitutional rights, well, we're getting kind of close to little sisters it's not the, the problem is not the state intervention. The problem is the state player, i.e. the casino corporation in this case. And that's what needs to be corrected under 24.1 or 49. So it's, 
it's it's only when it's the legislation itself uh, th that is the cause of the problem. Only then would twenty four one or forty nine kick in. So when it comes to the model that applies to managers, maybe the model isn't the problem. Maybe it's in the fact situation in a specific place, and the remedy should be under Section twenty four one. Well, that's an interesting point, Council. Your friends say at uh, paragraph 81 of their factum that in light of the evidence, according to them, the Casino Corporation refused to negotiate with the managers on the basis of the exclusion. So their point is that knowing that the managers were blocked under the labor code, that they didn't have access to the labor code, the corporation could jerk them around a little bit, so to speak. So your point is, even if that were true, you're saying that the remedy would lie elsewhere. Yes, under Section 24.1. It would be a remedy that was fashioned to solve the constitutional problem. Well, coming back to the question I asked your friend earlier, this is not really a case about interference. Because even if you concede that there was interference, because there was a conduct that was doubtful, the the essential, essentially the problem in this case is whether the remedy lies elsewhere, whether it's uh, Section 24.1 under the Charter. But it's certainly not, the solution is not to have the provision in question struck down or found to be unconstitutional. No, because that's not the cause of the constitutional issue. The exclusion from the labor code is not the source of the problem. There is a connection. It's, it comes back to Little Sisters. There has to be a direct causal connection between the legislative provision and the violation of constitutional rights. Perhaps it's a bit of an awkward uh, parallel but this comes up every day in Canada when a specific constitutional right is not respected. Does that create, uh, for example, if there's a, a does this obvious, does this always lead to the solution sought in this case? So, what about it's it's at the third stage of the test in other words in finding fault with the state finding fault with the casino corporation is i'm trying to see because it could have been argued that the problem was the solution was at the first stage of the test or it could have been argued sometimes when i read your submissions it's hard to follow. Uh, you're not that clear 
about the uh, on the interference issue, but really uh, for you the crux of the matter is the third stage of the test. Well, yes, and I would even add, and perhaps this would indirectly answer the question you had for my colleague. We didn't include this, unfortunately, in the condensed book, but paragraph 26 of Dunmore In order to blame this problem on the state, I think the terms of Justice Basterash were, were talking about a case of uh, under-inclusion or exclusion. The state would have to have orchestrated and encouraged or tolerated the conduct of a given party. And if that orchestration or encouragement or tolerance substantially contributed to the interference with the freedom of association. I think I'm just, I'm, I'm not even really paraphrasing that much. Well, the association makes an argument about international obligations that uh, the state failed to meet by including that exclusion in the Labour Code. What do you respond to that? If you just let me finish my answer first and then I'll come back to your question. So, on the issue of orchestrating, encouraging, or tolerating substantially, that has to be borne out by the evidence. But in this case, the Managers Association was recognized by the employer there were uh, something like union dues or association dues. There was something like a meaningful process in keeping with health services. So I, I don't think the, this meets the threshold in the third part of Dunmore, the third part of the test. Now to answer your question, Justice Cote, I'm not sure I have enough time to say everything I'd like to say, but first of all, the government did respond to the recommendation, the committee's recommendation, because the committee was not a tribunal, but it made a recommendation. It looked at the party's arguments and made a recommendation based on its reading of the scope of the agreements in question. And if you take our condensed book and turn to tab five, six, sorry, six. This is the government's response. It's dated September 5th, 2007. Health services came out in June 2007. So the government of Quebec's response was basically a cut and paste of the constitutional responsibilities set out in health services. So recognition of the parties, discussion of labor conditions, of working conditions. The mechanism for consultation. This is basically a cut and paste 
from health services, of the government's constitutional responsibilities toward managers. And I'll continue if you turn to tab one of our condensed book. There you will find an excerpt from the testimony of Mr. Lachance. Mr. Lachance was the president of the National Conference of Managers. So he was one of the parties that the government had to recognize. So here's what Mr. Lachance said about the impact of the Good Governance Guide that we just looked at uh, at uh, tab 6. So I'm on page 61, line 23. Mr. Lachance says, so tab 1, you see four pages reproduced on page on the first page at tab 1 and then if you go down to line 23 on page 61 Mr. Lachance describes the effect of the good governance guide he says if you'll allow me I would say that in the following months there were a number of situations where Crown corporations and employers and employer representatives agreed to meet with our association to discuss working conditions and for example at the liquor control board the association and manager manage the employer and the managers association agreed that this was a good idea we'll we'll sign it it satisfies it satisfies us almost fully so the the only place where there was no openness was at the casino corporation. So I would submit that the solution is not always legislation. The solution should be something that fixes the problem. And in this case, the government issued a response that was a cut and paste of health services. And in this case, the exclusion is not the source of the problem. It's a problem in one specific Crown Corporation. There's no direct causal connection between the exclusion in the Labour Code and the problem. The problem here was with the Casino Corporation, not with the Labour Code. Given how little time I have left, I'd like to turn your attention now to a passage that I think is quite important, a passage from the Mounted Police Decision, and you'll find it in our condensed book at tab 20. So the MPAO decision. And before I read it to you, it's at paragraphs 66 and 67 of the decision. One of the terms used that I believe has been misinterpreted in 
MPAO is the question of bargaining power. So if you try to argue that the goal of 2D is to equalize the bargaining power, well that's not what this court has said in MPAO or in other decisions. So when you're talking about bargaining power, well that's the underlying value of freedom of association. So this may appear negative but it's not at all. The very root of freedom of association is strength in numbers. It's to provide for collective clout uh, to strengthen an, uh, what would never fly as an individual. The idea was never to strike a perfect balance between the parties, but it was to try to rectify or, or improve the imbalance because when you're a, an individual, when you're alone, you have a lot less clout than when you're in a group. So that's the underlying fundamental idea. So I'll read paragraph 66 to you. This is a description of the purpose of freedom of association. In summary, section 2D viewed purposively protects three classes of activities. The right to join with others and form associations which is sometimes described as the constructive part, the right to join with others in the pursuit of other constitutional rights, and the right to join with others to meet on more equal terms the power and strength of other groups or entities. So it's always the right to join with others. That's the fundamental right at question here the right to join with others. Yes, collective bargaining is an important part of it. It's important because when collective bargaining was recognized as a protected activity, and coming back to health services, in order to establish substantial interference, the the test is whether uh, there's uh, whether the freedom to join with others is being discouraged to such a point that it substantially interferes with the freedom of association. In paragraph 67, the court comes back to Health Services and Fraser Applying the purposive approach just discussed to the domain of labor relations, we conclude that Section 2D guarantees the right of employees to meaningfully associate in the pursuit of collective workplace goals. So meaningfully associate. So guarantees the right of employees to meaningfully associate in the pursuit of collective workplace goals affirming the central holdings of Health Services and Fraser. This guarantee includes a right to collective bargaining. However, this is just as important, this part, however, that right is one that guarantees a process rather than an outcome 
or access to a particular model of labor relations. I think that's crystal clear. And if we continue on to the next page, which unfortunately you do not have. Anyway, it's not particularly important. But that's the other problem we have in this case. And this was never actually argued. The respondents want access to a specific labor regime, which is the labor code. They make that very clear in their factum. That is what they're, what they're after here. So there's a fundamental problem from the get-go. When you claim the right to associate, you do not get to pick which regime is going to apply to you. You can't choose a specific model. The key importance of the Dunmore and Bayer tests are in, there two, there's two parts to it. The remedy on the one hand and also the fact that under 2B for freedom of expression and 2D for freedom of association, you cannot you cannot claim access to any specific labor relations scheme or model. And that's why the Dunmore Buyer Test exists. It's based on that fundamental dichotomy in the exercise of the freedoms under 2B and 2D. Le, le temps file. One of uh, the questions that comes up when we think of the scope of Dunmore in this particular case. When it comes to applying the framework and the remedy as Justice Bastarash conceived of it, he proposed using a technique to confer a minimum degree of protection to agricultural workers and allowed uh, f the freedom to create that mechanism and, and he left that in the hands of the legislator. So maybe we need to have a better definition of employee as what is defined in 1L. I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say here, but is that a possible solution for the court, or do you see things otherwise? I have 38 seconds left, so I'll answer very quickly. First of all, there is a problem of a separation of powers that is very important. The court has certain roles to play, and the legislator has other roles to play. That's part of the answer. There are other parts other answers also, but in order to have a remedy, you have to determine what the reason is for violating uh, constitutional rights. And this comes to the distinction between 24-1 and the other section. When it comes to the definition of employee, many argue that uh, First line managers should 
have access to a Wagner type uh, scheme just like other employees but my problem with that is that we're describing frontline managers as a, a general term but in Quebec managers and frontline managers were clearly defined and the labor tribunal always adapted this definition by taking into account the actual jobs performed by managers or frontline managers in specific businesses to determine if these people were exercising the responsibilities of managers and should be excluded they reached the conclusion that they were essential for the running of the casino corporation and if you want to know where the labor tribunal is at today if you look at our condensed book there's a recent decision at tab 12 and if you look at the underlined sections the tribunal tries to qualify the table supervisors as excluded so what do these people actually do in their day-to-day -day work and are they actually managers and I'll end with this it's difficult to define these things in an abstract way you have to really look at the work that they do every day to determine whether they have a close relationship with the employer and act as the employers representatives the status of manager here is not challenged no thank you thank you Mr. Goudet. Chief Justice, Justices, the Attorney General of Canada has two main arguments. The test put forward by this court in Dunmore, Byer, and City of Toronto should apply in a situation where a party is asking to be included in a specific legislative scheme. Secondly, for employees who exercise true uh, manageable positions should have access to 2D. In City of Toronto, this court left the question open as to whether the Dunmore test remains valid in the context of positive uh, claims under 2D. We argue that the Dunmore test remains valid and that the distinction between positive and negative rights applies and continues to apply to freedom of association similarly to freedom of expression 
Now, there can be circumstances where you can't just uh, show a reserve to protect fundamental freedoms and government measures must be taken, but the three parts of the test in Dunmore should still apply and there's a higher threshold for claims about positive rights because they limit the circumstances in which a, a state can uh, make decisions uh, in law. Now, in the context of freedom of expression, the court recognized that the distinction between positive and negative rights remains very important when you're looking at the nature of the obligation. We don't believe that there's any reason to change that in the context of freedom of association. And now I'm going to move to our second argument, the separation between employees and management is fundamental to labor relations in all provinces and at the federal level. They are all based on the Wagner model, which was recognized by this court in MPAO as a way of ensuring true collective bargaining. The distinction that the Wagner model creates between employees and people who exercise managerial powers must be part of the analysis of freedom of association guaranteed under the Charter. There are three main objectives that uh, justify this distinction between managers and employees. First of all, excluding managers from bargaining units avoids conflicts of interest between the loyalty that they owe to their employee, employer and to employees. This conflict of interest or loyalty exists when somebody exercises authority over someone they're working with. Secondly, this separation has the objective of stopping any interference on the part of the employer. And this distinction between managers and employees the objective is for employees to be able to choose an association that represents their interests and is not controlled by the employer. This independence means that the activities undertaken by an association reflect the objectives of employees and ensures a proper functioning of collective bargaining. And finally, the separation also allows employers to manage their businesses and ensure that their managers have a duty of loyalty towards them. The possibility of a conflict of interest does exist even if managers have their own bargaining unit. Managers 
who are unionized would have shared loyalties between their association and their employer. And that would create tensions that do not exist at this time. The employer must have confidence that their managers represent their interests and do not have shared loyalties and that cannot be guaranteed if managers are included in labor relations schemes. It's easy to imagine situations where unionized managers and unionized workers could come into conflict at the beginning of a collective bargaining process in order to negotiate mutually beneficial terms to the detriment of the employer. In order to keep the balance that currently exists, thanks to the Wagner model, it is essential that we preserve the distinction, the fundamental distinction between employees and people who exercise managerial functions on behalf of the employer. In our factum, we have submissions uh, about the federal scheme, public and private. And in those two schemes, uh, supervisors or managers are excluded. Or rather, managers are excluded, but not supervisors, because they do not exercise uh, true managerial uh, power. If there are no questions from the bench, I uh, will end here. Thank you. Savitri Gordian. Thank you. I have two submissions. First, Section 2D does not guarantee a freestanding constitutional right to inclusion in a statutory labor relations scheme. Except in the case of particularly vulnerable employees, like the agricultural workers in Dunmore, non-statutory processes can provide for good faith bargaining and allow employees to associate collectively for the pursuit of workplace goals on more equal terms with their employer. What Section 2D protects is the right to a meaningful process of collective bargaining. But this court has consistently held that it does not constitutionalize any one model of labor relations, nor does it protect outcomes. The focus on vulnerability and the Dunmore-Bear test allows for the identification of those unique cases where state assistance is required to make Section 2D collective bargaining rights meaningful. Second, the inclusion of genuine managers in Wagner Act bargaining schemes poses serious conflict of interest concerns that are directly relevant to Section 2D, not just Section 1. Ontario's Wagner Act model excludes employees who, quote, exercise managerial functions. The Ontario Labour Relations Board, an independent expert tribunal, has developed a managerial functions test that considers whether an employee is, quote, 
a mere conduit for managerial authority, in which case they will not be excluded, or whether, alternatively, they display the real indicia of economic power over employees. Those indicia include the power to hire, fire, promote, and discipline employees. Genuine managers who have this economic power over employees must be excluded to maintain the adversarial arm's length relationship between management and employees that underpins the Wagner Act model, a bargaining process that is marred by conflicts of interest cannot be a meaningful bargaining process. As an intervener, Ontario takes no position on the disposition of this appeal or the facts. But with respect to the legal principles, our first submission is that any challenge to the statutory exclusion of managers from Wagner Act-style labor relations schemes is fundamentally a positive rights claim because it seeks to compel government to create a statutory scheme that would apply to managers where none currently exists. Do you agree that whether or not you apply the uh, Dunmore Bayer test or um, mounted police, that you, a court should get the same result in any case because we're concerned with the same right? Uh, one framework may be easier to apply than another, but one should get the same result. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? I mean, obviously, if you're dealing with uh, a complete absence of protection, uh, it may be hard to apply the first branch of mounted to police because then there may not be a measure that's alleged to uh, infringe, substantially infringe Section 2D. But in principle, one should get the same result, whichever framework you apply. Not necessarily, because I think what's distinct about the Dunmore test um, and why it's not simply redundant in light of the jurisprudence from MPAO and the other cases in the 2015 trilogy is that focus, that really special particular focus on vulnerability. And we know from Dunmore that in this context, in this labor and employment context, the charter can give rise to positive obligations. So we know that. Um, based on, again, the vulnerability of some employees. And I think that that's clear when you look at the court's reasoning in Dunmore, and I would note particularly paragraph 41 on that point. The issue is that without a statutory schemes, these vulnerable groups may find themselves unable to exercise their fundamental freedoms. And that was the finding in Dunmore. But more powerful groups, on the other hand, will be able to associate collectively and meet their employers on more equal terms outside statutory processes. So that's why the Dunmore test for under-inclusion claims has that particular focus, really the touchstone is vulnerability. So Dunmore ensures that the positive dimension of Section 2D is fully vindicated but in a manner that respects the institutional competence and the democratic mandate of the government to decide whether or not to legislate. It puts clear limits on the positive dimension of the Section 2D right to ensure that it remains anchored in the language and purpose of the provision. And it does that as well through the first and third steps of the Dunmore test, which of course asks, 
is the claim rooted in a fundamental freedom? And the third step, which asks about the state's rule and whether any substantial interference can be attributed to the state. All of these um, are what make the Dunmore test specifically tailored to the positive dimension of the Section 2D right. My second point is the conflict of interest concerns and where they fit in the Section 2D analysis. This court's Section 2D jurisprudence has consistently been attentive to the integrity and fairness of the collective bargaining process as a whole. The Wagner-Rack model that is at issue in this appeal is not the only model of labor relations, but it is the dominant model across Canada. The exclusion of managerial employees in order to prevent conflicts of interest is one of many elements in the Wagner Act model that work together to create a fair and effective process. The exclusion of managers is not an extraneous element that can be looked at in isolation. It's actually a critically important part of the Wagner Act model. This is because conflicts of interest breed distrust and they can actively undermine the potential for good faith bargaining, which is what Section 2D and the Wagner Act model seek to protect. The conflict of interest concerns here are particularly acute because they jeopardize both employer and employee interests. And I will just make a note of the fuller discussion in our factum at this point at paragraphs 18 and 23. Conflicts of interest are also different than the type of broader public interest concerns that this court has held should only be considered under Section 1 because they fail to speak to the claimant's personal interest in vindicating their charter right. But the Section 2D right, the right that a claimant is seeking to vindicate, is to a meaningful process of collective bargaining. And you can't have meaningful collective bargaining if you have a process that is marred by conflicts of interest. Yes, but it isn't only collective bargaining. It's the ongoing uh, employment relationship. For example, if someone who's uh, operating on behalf of management gives a direction or reports a problem with an employee and that, that employee is later disciplined, the internal discipline procedures of the union can be used against the person representing management. And this, this, this interferes with the proper operation of management rights. So it's, it isn't just the collective bargaining part, it's the ongoing uh, employment relationship. Yes, Justice Rowe, that's exactly right. And that is part of the duty of loyalty concern that we see reflected in some of the labor relations board jurisprudence. To conclude, because I see that my time is short, this court has never conflated managerial and non-managerial employees. Nor has it ever conflated vulnerable employees with more powerful employees. The Section 2D right is to a meaningful process of collective bargaining, which is one that is fair, that has integrity, and that is not marred by conflicts of interest. Invalidating a core element of the Wagner Act model, namely the exclusion of managers, on the basis that it violates Section 2D collective bargaining rights would be inconsistent with this court's 
modern Section 2D jurisprudence and its contextualized and purposive approach. Subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. The court will now take its morning break for 15 minutes. Cool. The court. Michael Wall. Thank you. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. On behalf of the Attorney General of Alberta, I intend to focus my submissions this morning on two main bill-related points. The first is that the mere exclusion from a statutory collective bargaining regime will not, on its own, constitute a substantial state interference with freedom of, associati with freedom of association under Section 2D of the Charter. Instead, a party must provide evidence to show that the statutory exclusion itself amounts to or results in a substantial state interference. My second point is that extra statutory bargaining can provide employees with a meaningful process of collective bargaining, including a meaningful process for resolving disputes. As we have already heard this morning, in the context of a labor relations, Section 2D protects an employee's right to a meaningful process of collective bargaining. However, freedom of association under Section 2D is, as this court has noted, fundamentally non-statutory. And as a result, doesn't generally require the state to enact a statutory regime to protect or to facilitate that meaningful process of collective bargaining. Given that the state isn't obligated to enact a statutory uh, bargaining regime, the mere exclusion from any such regime cannot in and of itself violate Section 2D. Instead, a claimant must provide sufficient evidence to demonstrate that the statutory exclusion itself substantially interferes with the meaningful process of collective bargaining, or that government, as the employer, has engaged in specific actions that violate Section 2D. However, it's also important to note that the evidence must demonstrate an interference with the constitutionally protected meaningful process of collective bargaining not with the process of collective bargaining mandated by the particular statutory regime at issue. As we've perhaps already heard this morning, the meaningful process of collective bargaining guaranteed by Section 2D protects the more general associational rights of employees to join together to pursue their collective workplace goals, to make collective representations to their employer that are to be considered in good faith, and to a process for resolving disputes. To be meaningful, that process must include sufficient choice and independence from the employer and management. So generally speaking, Section 2D protects a process that respects these general associational principles, which together prevent the employee from being isolated in the pursuit of their employment goals. In contrast, 
statutory collective bargaining under Wagner model type uh, regimes includes very specific and detailed provisions governing the entire relationship essentially between management and labor. The Alberta relations, the Alberta Labor Relations Code, for instance, includes some 209 sections across four parts governing everything from certification to the composition of appropriate bargaining units, procedures regarding how to collectively bargain, and then rules restricting the resort to economic, uh, economic actions such as strikes and lockouts. Compared to the, the general associational principles, Wagner model collective bargaining is much more prescriptive and is based on a detailed set of policy trade-offs, some of which involve granting rights and at the expense of limiting others. So while the exclusion from a Wagner model statutory regime obviously denies the excluded group access to those statutory rights, it doesn't necessarily follow that that exclusion substantially interferes with the general associational principles underlying the Section 2D meaningful process of collective bargaining. To demonstrate a breach of Section 2D, a, a claimant has to provide evidence, and that evidence must show two things. The first is that in the factual circumstances, there has actually been a substantial interference with the meaningful process of collective bargaining. And this court has said that includes things like something that significantly and adversely impacts or seriously undermines the principles underlying the meaningful process of collective bargaining. And second, the evidence must demonstrate a sufficient nexus between the substantial interference and the state action. In exceptional circumstances, such as we've heard about from Dunmore, there can be a sufficient nexus between a statutory exclusion itself and the substantial interference. More commonly, however, the substantial interference will arise from the direct actions or measures of government as the employer, in which case the nexus is going to be obvious. But in all cases, evidence of substantial state interference beyond the mere fact of exclusion is going to be required. Mr. Wall, can I ask you to address a, a point made in your factum, to, that just ask you to explain it further? It's paragraph 57 where you address circumstances in which uh, where a 2D breach is found, what how courts should react and provide remedies. And, and I'm wondering uh, what, what, you, what kind of remedies you can imagine when you, you say that deference should be given to, the, to legislatures to craft charter compliance statutory regime. What, what exactly do you have in mind? What kind of order do you have in mind from, from a court in that kind of circumstance? Uh, thank you. I, I think in that circumstance, if we were talking about um, crafting a statutory regime, it would be that there had been a um, unconstitutional purpose perhaps found, in which case the, um, the court would, could order that the uh, provision should be struck down and that given a stay to craft a regime that remedies uh, the, the unconstitutional purpose or effect. And, and so can, can you give an example of where that was done? I mean, are you thinking of Dunmore itself? What, 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 what do you have in mind? Yeah, I was thinking of uh, the, the, the one that comes to mind. I mean, it's, a, it's going to be a rare circumstance. Um, uh, in Dunmore, that was done. It was also done in Mounted Police, in which the, the statutory regime was struck down, but 
there was time given to craft a an appropriate response. I guess the fact that it's government that's the employer also would be insufficient to attack the statute. Really what has to be uh, focused on is whether the um, infringement of Section 2D derives from uh, the legislation, properly speaking, rather than just... Uh, so here, I guess, the analogue would be the fact that it's a Crown uh, Corporation, it's the ultimate employer, it's kind of uh, irrelevant because obviously any any legislative remedy that would be applied would be applicable across the board. That's really not the issue. There has to be the, a nexus between uh, the legislation and any substantial interference with Section 2D. So it's really not the quality of the employer that matters, but nexus with the legislation. Yes, that's, that's precisely, uh, precisely our point. I think if the, when you have a Crown or a government employer who engages in particular actions that may amount to a violation of Section 2D, you obviously do not need a legislative solution. The, the remedy would be something else, one that would be crafted to remedy those specific actions. <clears throat> I will move on to perhaps to my second point, and that, and that essentially also emphasizes the need for evidence in that beyond the fact, or be, evidence beyond the mere fact of exclusion, is namely that in the context of a government employer, a meaningful process of collective bargaining is already available to employees, um, one that respects the associational, associational principles underlying Section 2D. We can see this fact in the meaningful, in that the meaningful, meaningful collective bargaining, including the freedom to collectively withdraw services or to uh, collectively bargain was recognized and exercised well in advance of Wagner model type regimes, which were instituted in the 1930s and 40s. And again, in Dunmore, the court observed that, we're, you know, when we're talking about freedom of association, we're talking about something that is fundamentally non-statutory. And absent a labor relations regime, um, there are no statutory impediments, generally speaking, to prevent employees of government in particular from exercising their meaningful associational rights including the, the ability to gather together to uh, pursue collective goals. More importantly, as, we've, as has already been discussed, if the government is the employer and engages in particular actions, their empl government employees have a remedy and they can seek effective recourse through the courts. So in short, when a government is the employer, excluded employees from a statutory labor relations scheme face no statutory restrictions on their ability to organize collectively and to meaningfully pursue workplace goals. And in the ability to seek a remedy through court to enjoy a meaningful recourse if their, employee, if their employer engages in bad faith behaviors. So to conclude, Alberta would simply emphasize that the exclusion of managers, uh, which has been a central feature of the Wagner model regime for eight, over 80 years, cannot without evidence that the exclusion results in a substantial interference with the general principles underlying Section 2D amount to a breach of their freedom of association. And that is true in part because employees can engage in meaningful extra statutory bargaining. Thank you very much. And if much. there are no further questions, those are our submissions today. Thank you. Timothy Lawson. Thank you and good morning. Uh, as you know, we represent the Canadian Association of Council for Employers CASE and the members of CASE are Labour Employment Council to many of Canada's unionized employers in both the private and public sectors. 
The focus of my submissions uh, this morning will be on the scope of Section 2D of the Charter. Uh, CASE does not believe that Section 2D should be uh, interpreted to expand um, and extend collective bargaining rights to managers. Uh, managers have traditionally been excluded from collective bargaining and uh, CASE thinks that is appropriate. If a province wants to extend collective bargaining rights, uh, that is their prerogative in our submission. And some provinces do that to different degrees, but the vast majority of them do not in their labor uh, statutes. Um, and, and, and they shouldn't have to um, extend it, um, those rights just because section 2D uh, demands it. Uh, there are three uh, very important features about our labor relations model um, in Canada that are relevant to this case. Um, some of them have already been discussed uh, earlier. I'll just highlight them quickly. Um, the model is built around the separation of employees and employers, uh, so there's no management interference. Uh, number two, the model assumes that uh, collective rights are necessary to protect employees from the imbalance of power caused by the, uh, the very fact that there's an employer. And, and thirdly, the model is adversarial. Uh, collective bargaining is adversarial. Uh, strikes and lockouts are very adversarial. Uh, grievance arbitration is adversarial. The relationship between the union and the employer is inherently conflictual. And, and nothing uh, about this has changed since the Wagner Act was introduced in the 40s. Uh, Case is concerned with the idea of introducing managers into this model via Section 2D as if they're the same as, as rank and file non-management employees. Uh, they are not the same in our submission. Managers, and, and what I mean by that are, are true managers, ones that hire, ones that fire, ones that discipline, ones that supervise, make independent decisions. Those managers are the representatives of the employer on the shop floor, in the workplace. In effect, they are the employer. They're the arms of the employer. And they must be trusted by the employer to carry out their tasks, their responsibilities, and the employer's directions to a much higher degree than uh, non-management employees. And that loyalty flows in one direction towards the employer. So in our submission, including managers in collective bargaining undermines the very reason why managers are excluded. It puts them into a conflict of interest between their loyalty to the employer and their loyalty to the union. And in a sense, it makes managers adversaries and confuses the managerial role. Uh, you, you can't be loyal to the employer and the union at the same time. Uh, you can't fight from both sides of the fence. And, and uh, we raise these not as theoretical or abstract issues or concerns. Um, our submission details multiple areas where the conflict plays out in today's modern workplace, where being in a union or wanting to be in a union, or wanting to be in a union to hold a position of power um, will compromise managers from carrying out their duties, from being confidential with sensitive employer information about strategies, and generally acting in the best interest of the employer. So in our submission, I won't take you through it, of course, in, in the time that I have, uh, but we highlight um, multiple areas uh, of concern where the conflict of interest um, might arise, which Mr. Justice Rowe uh, was referring to uh, earlier. Um, unionized managers supervising unionized employees, whether or not they're in the same union. Um, conflicts in a strike situation where managers are required to perform struck work or monitor picket lines to ensure safety and avoid trespassing and sabotage. 
we ask where will those loyalties lie if they're also unionized, those managers, and thinking about their next turn to go on strike. Uh, conflicts are even more pronounced when managers hold or aspire to hold positions of union power, like being on the union bargaining committee, being a shop steward, being a grievance officer. Those positions have a loyalty to the union, not to the employer. The conflict of interest in our submission is not solved by simply having to separate bargaining units or even, um, or even having separate bargaining units with different unions representing employees and managers. Extending 2D rights uh, would represent a dramatic shift in our submission in the model and will affect how managers behave and how employers will structure their uh, organizations. Uh, in our submissions, we try to offer some limit uh, on the expansion of, the, of these collective bargaining rights if the court was so inclined. But the fact of the matter is that the conflict of interest does not go away at any level of manager. Thank you. Thank you very much. I forgot to refer to Mathieu Bernier-Trudeau and Andrew Wiseman when I uh, uh, read the sheet this morning who represent the Canadian Association of Council of Two Employers. Mr. Brochu. Ms. Cloutier. Mesdames, Messieurs les juges, mon nom est Sophie Cloutier. Justices, my name is Sophie Cloutier and I'm accompanied by Jean-Luc Dufour and we are representing the Association des cadres de la Société des casinos du Québec. We uh, sent you a condensed book that also contains my scheme of argument. Of course, I am at your disposal to answer any questions what I'd like to discuss, first of all, is uh, the issue of the applicable test. That seems to be an issue that interests the court, so I'll begin by trying to convince you that the applicable test is the substantial interference test from MPAO. Secondly, I will demonstrate the substantial interference and if you decide that the Beyer and Dunmore test do apply then I will demonstrate that there is substantial interference in the case at bar and if I have enough time I will talk about the standard of review. So first of all, we argue that the Court of Appeal was right in concluding that the framework that applies in this case is that of MPAO Health Services and not the test in Dunmore Buyer. 
the MPAO decision is an important sets an important precedent chief justice you also referred to city of toronto but in our reading of the toronto decision your court did not decide conclusively whether the buyer test should apply when it comes to freedom of association i would refer you to my condensed book tab 7 where you'll find the Toronto decision paragraph 21 where this court says this case offers uh, the opportunity to confirm and clarify the application of buyer in cases based on positive rights at 2b it also creates an Framework for analysis established for the first time in Dunmore, which uh, had to do with 2D, freedom of association. It is not necessary to decide whether in this case the Dunmore decision remains applicable to any claims founded on 2D. It seems to us that the dis there's no clear decision. Ms. Cloutier, you say that the MPAO framework applies because it's an important decision. That's fine, but do you recognize that the factual context is completely different here compared to MPA MPAO? Justice Cloutier, I will try to convince you that the opposite is true. If you Turn back to my condensed book. We have relevant excerpts of MPAO. So I would invite you to look at paragraph 29 first of all. In that case, the RCMP members were challenging their exclusion from the general negotiate, uh, bargaining rights within the public service, and they were also challenging the imposition of a scheme. And why is paragraph 29 relevant? Well, your court analyzed the two two aspects of that scheme independently of course they are related I can see that but if you look at the courts analysis you can see in paragraph 29 the court tried to determine if the program did constitute a substantial interference and the court did not use the buyer test. I would argue that in our case, the case is similar to the MPAO case because we are challenging our exclusion from the general scheme, which is the labor code. I agree with you 
the court analyzed both aspects, the aspect of exclusion and the imposition of a mandatory scheme, but it's the combined effect of the two, and I would refer you to MPAO paragraph 35. It was the combination that was considered to be a substantial interference. I do recognize, Justice Gauthier, that the combined effect was taken into consideration by your court, but if you don't mind, I will refer you to paragraph 131, where it says, the purpose of paragraph D of the definition of employee in section 2.1 of uh, the Act, viewed in its historical context, violates 2D of the Charter. The PSSRA and later the PSLRA established the general framework for labor relations and collective bargaining in the federal public sector. A class of employees and members of the RCMP has since the initial enactment of this regime been excluded from its application in order to prevent them from exercising their associational rights under 2D. The issue to be addressed is whether the purpose of excluding a specific class of employees from the labor relations regime impermissibly breaches the constitutional rights of the affected employees. The issue is not whether Parliament must impose a new statutory labor relations regime in the presence of a legislative void. I would submit that your court, the court said, the program is constitutes a substa substantial interference and what allowed this uh, regime to be put into place, it was the exclusion from the act. So they're not asking the legislator to act. So it was the regime and the exclusion that were considered to be a substantial interference. But So managers were able to associate and they created an association and it's been around for a number of years. That's right, Justice Cote, but it's my submission that the freedom of association and the protection under Section 2D doesn't just protect the creation of a, an association. The association has to be set up, it has to be independent from the employer, it has to be able to promote the interests of the groups independent of the group independently from the employer. It also has to be able to bargain and there's also the question of the right to strike. Well, the underlying purpose of association is to enable workers, whether they're managers or not, in this case it's managers, to enable them to join together because they're strength in numbers and to argue and negotiate by bargain and so on. But that is, is are there not uh, remedies under Section 49 of the Quebec Charter? If the employees, if the managers are unhappy, they've been able to associate. It's my submission, Justice Wagner, that uh, apart from the fact that they're an association, that's basically the only right that they've actually been able to exercise under 2D. Well, have they tried to negotiate? Have they tried to access arbitration, for example? Well, I would limit ourselves to the evidence on the record. Then the court of the Superior Court, let's not forget, found that there was a substantial interference with the bargaining process. So that was a finding and the Court of Appeal upheld that. So to answer your question, Chief Justice, were there any other remedies, any other, was there any other relief sought 
Well, you have to look at the whole history of this case. Remember, in the beginning, there were other managers' associations, and things were done internationally. Uh, was Justice Dion wrong? No, I don't think he was wrong. I wouldn't uh, go so far as to say that my friend uh, made a mistake. I have too much respect for him. But I think one thing that's been left out is the persuasive uh, weight of the evidence. So there are people who are members of other organizations. Some of them are here as interveners today. So they did a number of things initially in order to come up with some sort of scheme that would apply to managers. So in this case, there was a recommendation that the Quebec legislature amend the labor code to allow managers access to the labor code. And those efforts, in our view, were disregarded by the state. And I would come, I would re refer you back to the good governance guide that my friend referred to earlier. So in this case, the Association of Casino Managers saw what other associations had done to try to get the right to bargain collectively. And in spite of all those efforts uh, internationally, those recommendations were not followed in Quebec. And that's what led to the application for accreditation here in, in Quebec. Now, Justice Wagner, you asked if other remedies had been sought, and I would bring you back to the historical facts because efforts were made internationally and uh, requests were made to have the Labor Code amended, and that didn't happen. So that is why the application was made in the first place. So a choice was made for a very specific labor regime. I would submit that it's not about a specific regime. What my clients are looking for is the protection granted by Section 2D. And some people are saying this isn't the right way to go about it. There should have been, you should have gone to a common law, a court of common law, an ordinary court, in other words, to seek a remedy. Well, let's take a different example. What if it were about the right to strike? What if that was the issue here? Because the people I represent, we argue that they are deprived of the right to strike because they do not have access to the labor code. So they have no protection under the labor code if there were a legal strike. So they cannot, they, they're not entitled to stop working as a group. So if they did that, it would be on an individual basis and individually each member of the, of the association could decide to stop working and they would expose themselves to disciplinary measures because the labor contract provides that there's an obligation to report for work. So individually, not collectively, if they stopped working, they would expose themselves to discipline. Well, what if they decided to stop working and the employer fired them or suspended them or stopped paying them? They could seek a remedy under Section 49 of the Quebec Charter, for example.
if they're right to association, their freedom of association had been legitimately exercised, they could apply under Section 49 for uh, to be reinstated or to get damages, to get compensation, to, to get uh, the, their payback. Well, in that very specific example, there is no precedent of that nature. So, you would be asking my clients to pave the way, to break new trail, if you will, and maybe in a few years they could get their back pay or their job back. So, remember that in this case, the, man the employer did try to discourage the managers from exercising their rights. So, what better example uh, of discouragement if it, this all happened at the expense of losing your job and having to apply under the Charter? Well, what would prevent an association from including in a protocol like the one that was signed between the association and the corporation, uh, a, a, a dispute resolution mechanism. Well, Madam Speaker, the employer would have to agree to that and the problem lies precisely there. The protocol that came into being in 2001 had four provisions and systematically the casino corporation has refused to renegotiate it. So no, there is no such alternative dispute resolution mechanism provided for in this case. And my colleague talked about different situations, different from the one that's before us here today. For example, the Good Governance Guide was presented uh, as if it was a, a type of evidence of the states and that my, my friend said that it was based on health services and I would certainly leave that up to the interveners who are going to speak later. I would allow them to deal with that claim, but my clients do not benefit from that good governance guide. Why? Could I just finish up on this? They do not benefit from that good governance guide because the government of Quebec adopted that guide for its own employees and refused to impose it on the casino corporation as a crown corporation. So my clients find themselves in a situation where this so-called implementation of a mechanism by the government of Quebec, well, it's my clients are excluded from that. If I understand your argument, are you not trying to extend the freedom of association by including an obligation to collectively bargain? Well, what I would submit, Justice, is that the teachings of your court impose good faith bargaining. In health services, it's clear that the freedom of association protected by Section 2D already imposes on both parties an obligation to bargain in good faith. So this is not an extension. We're not arguing for an extension. We're arguing for uh, a recognition that my clients do not currently enjoy that right to bargain in good faith. Well, counsel, I'd like to bring you back to your outline of arguments and the analytical framework. 
you give the example of the guide and you that the government of Quebec did not impose that guide on the casino corporation, but indirectly you're raising the problem of uh, blaming the state for this situation, uh, which is at the root of your complaint. Here's my question. If Dunmore applies, and if ultimately you have to establish a causal connection, where is the causal connection here? Because when I read your application for accreditation, which I read closely, you complain about the corporation's conduct. And in the answers you gave the Chief Justice and Justice Cote, you talked about the corporation's uh, improper conduct. But it seems to me that that's quite a leap to pin the blame on the state for this charter violation. Whether it's through Bayer or Dunmore or even mounted police, you could say it doesn't apply or the combined effect or the focus on the purpose rather than the effect. But where's the cause and effect link? Where's the causal link between the Crown Corporation's conduct and the government of Quebec or the state? I understand your question. And I take it that the link, whether it's on the basis of the facts uh, under Dunmore or Byer, in any event, the responsibility of the state is two-prong in our view. First of all, the casino corporation is a crown corporation. The Attorney General of Canada attended throughout all the proceedings that have led up to today. The state is aware that my clients have been making efforts for years internationally and within Quebec to get the right to bargain collectively, to have their association respected. And the Attorney General has done nothing. The Attorney General took the initiative to create this good governance guide but didn't impose it on Crown Corporations. So to come back to the Court of Appeals expression, so the groundwork was done for the casino corporation to ignore our association because they have no protection. But counsel, to follow up on my colleague's question, you have to demonstrate causality. You have to demonstrate that there is a causal connection between the exclusion and the violation. But there are lots of other organizations where things are working perfectly well, other associations. Here the problem is more due to, and this, there were some findings made by the Labor Tribunal, but it seems that the problem here lies with this one individual Crown Corporation. 
and the remedy would not be striking down the legislative provision. It would be a remedy fashioned to this one specific employer. Well, I'm going to just put your question on hold, Justice Cote. I'd like to answer the second part of Justice Kazerer's question, but I'll come back to your question, Justice Cote, uh, if you don't mind. I would think, I would find it a bit ironic, so to speak, if the argument is that other associations have been recognized through regulation and so on, whereas that evidence is not on the record. So that situation is, in a way, and if you look at the factum, if you look at the intervener's factum, the interveners that represent a number of managerial associations in Quebec, if you look at paragraph 42 of their factum, they argue that although there are some managers who have been recognized and, and their association has been recognized, they still feel that they're denied the right to collective bargaining as guaranteed by the Constitution. So there's no evidence on either side, either way, on this issue, but I would encourage you to be cautious about taking my friend's assertion that there are other associations of managers in Quebec. There's no evidence uh, before you to that effect. And there's certainly no evidence that those associations enjoy all the protections under Section 2D of the Charter. Are we in a unique position in Quebec? Perhaps. And what are we supposed to do about that? It's my respectful submission that the there's an undeniably substantial interference here with the right. The casino corporation has bypassed the association, has not respected their independence. The, the corporation has not respected their obligation to bargain in good faith. So that's the situation. And the government of Quebec has done nothing about it. They say, just go take the case to the ordinary courts and try to seek a remedy under the char the Quebec Charter, Section 49. But it's our submission that by excluding managers at all levels, I represent frontline managers, but all managers have been excluded. And that upholds a situation that allows the casino corporation to keep acting in the way it's been acting. And if we come back to the issue of international law, but what are the responsibilities in international law? What are the government of Quebec's international obligations? I don't think there are any. It's an obligation of the federal government not the government of Quebec. When a treaty is ratified, that's a federal responsibility. It's an international obligation between Canada and other states party to the treaty, uh, other states that have ratified the treaty. 
Well, it's my submission, Justice Rowe, that there's a persuasive value. And what this court has recognized is that international treaties that Canada signs on to, we have to assume that the domestic law is at, at least equivalent. And there were decisions by the Committee on Union Freedom recognizing the situation of managers in Quebec, including our association. In light of their situation, the committee found that the government of Quebec should amend the Labour Code to extend access to managers, given that under the current situation they were deprived of their right under Section 2. Council, you're right. The National Assembly is sovereign and they will decide, given a very specific context and environment, what, what the, the, the legislature decides what's the right thing to do. And the recommendation from the committee, even if it's a good one, that's not determinative. If you decide that excluding frontline managers that I'm representing is a substantial interference because If you do conclude that excluding them from the protection conferred by the Labour Code means that they are the victims of substantial interference and therefore you conclude that their exclusion is void, they will return to the Labour Tribunal, the case will follow its natural course and 13 years later we will be able to determine if the other characteristics are met but the basis of the problem will continue to exist today this is not a request for positive intervention we are not asking the Quebec government for intervention here we are only asking for a finding that the group I am representing is not, ex should not be excluded. Yes, but that's a semantic issue. It depends how you're looking at the pro problem. You could also say what your people you're representing are asking is to have access to a specific scheme, which is a positive right. You're saying no, no, it's negative because they don't want to be excluded. So isn't this a semantic debate? It might be a question of semantics, but it seems to me my reading of this court, it seems that the distinction between positive and negative rights, as uh, the court said in Toronto, it, it's not completely black and white. There is a bit of nuance. And if I can give you an example to illustrate my argument, I would invite you to turn to the Labour Tribunal decision. 
it's in my condensed book at tab 9. If you go to page 58 of the decision, the adjudicator describes the different labor schemes that exist in Quebec outside of the labor code. And the example that I, example that I want to, to turn to is that of the intermediary resources, family type resources, and daycares. And what she says is that these uh, groups made uh, an application for certification and in response in paragraph 272 the National Assembly adopted two laws in order to create two distinct schemes but that of course is the prerogative of the National Assembly. I would argue that in this case the National Assembly could decide to do what they did in uh, terms of daycares and family resources. We could find ourselves in the very same situation but at the same time the National Assembly could also choose not to intervene because uh, this uh, application for uh, inoperability could lead to a different result. The people that I am representing have shown the Labour Tribunal and this was also confirmed by the Superior Court that there is a substantial interference to their right to freedom of association. In other words, the people that I'm representing do not have access to the protection conferred by 2D. So this is a, a choice that we made. We decided to work towards uh, this uh, result because the, there didn't seem to be any movement on the part of the Attorney General. Depending on your decision, it's possible that the National Assembly will choose a certain court course of action. I'll come back to my concern about attributing responsibility to the state. But what do you say to the Superior Court judge's conclusion that there is no evidence that the party used any other mechanism aside from the big stick, if you'll allow the expression. They've tried to encourage an amendment to the law. It's asking a lot. The employer in question is not the state. 
194, the Superior Court judge blames you for that inaction, says that you should have taken a different tack. And says that you should have tried to find a solution in relation to the moral uh, person, in other words, the corporation and not the government. Who is the target of this appeal? If uh, we were before common law courts, and the other party was uh, the Casino Corporation, rather than going for an application for certification, then you might have gotten satisfaction. In that case, you would have really been targeting the party responsible for the conduct that you, de that you uh, deplore. Well, in fact, that is premised on the idea that you're rejecting my argument that the inaction of the state allowed the corporation to behave in the way it did. No, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to complicate things for you, but you're taking a roundabout path here. You're going around the casino corporation to try to reach this protection under the labor code rather than targeting, directly targeting the organization that is to blame here when it comes to parking, when it comes to uh, labor terms. Well, there were some attempts, but they're all related to the application for certification. Once an application for certification is uh, made, then there are certain actions that cannot be taken. The corporation challenged the jurisdiction of the arbitrator and it went up the court system until the decision was made. And so, for that reason, the remedy under 59 of labor, the Labor Code was not an option. But let's look at the facts. What could have been done? I wish I had precedents to present, but there are none. And so we made a choice. Now I understand that you're questioning whether it was the right path to take, but otherwise, what would it have meant? It would have meant making an attempt before the common law courts with the delays that we're aware of. My friend says, well, you know, arbitration is not very efficient. We were before the labor tribunal and it was a case of bad faith. Those types of cases are heard very quickly. So, In reality, if we had taken a different route, we might have had to wait for years. But these problems are occurring today. And so, in our submission, 
these common law fora are not the right ones to deal with this issue. If I turn to the issue of uh, good faith bargaining, I'll bring you to my tab. Are you arguing that because of the delays of going before other courts, it's much quicker to go through 2B to reach your goals? It's not just a question of delays, it's also the impact. Remember that uh, a substantial interference argument has as an objective to discourage certain behavior. And I think that imposing this type of fight on an association is discouraging them from trying to defend their rights uh, through collective association. And if you look at Saskatchewan, which is in my condensed book at tab six, so in this case, Justice Abella briefly but very efficiently sums up what the right to collective bargaining protects it to be, to D rather. And so she describes the evolution and then in the first third in health services, 20 years later the court decides that 2D protects the right of employees to engage in a meaningful process of collective bargaining the rights were further enlarged in Fraser, where the court accepted that a meaningful process includes employees' rights to join together to pursue workplace goals, make collective representations to the employer, and to have those representations considered in good faith, including having a means of recourse should the employer not bargain in good faith. And in Fraser, When the law was passed, within the scheme, there was a specialized recourse before a specialized tribunal to deal with these cases of bad faith negotiation. So we don't believe that it makes sense to have this debate on the protection of 2D every single time there's a problem uh, that is in the area of bad faith negotiations. And so I respectfully submit that given the Saskatchewan judgment, the right to have access to good faith bargaining includes a recourse And in the case at bar, the people I'm representing do not have access to good faith bargaining. I'd also like to mention uh, the Labor Tribunal decision that, that does uh, refer to different uh, schemes. There was recourse, there were remedies that were set out. And so we find ourselves in a situation where 
certain specific schemes were laid out to allow people to exercise fully their freedom of association. But the group that I am representing are frontline managers and that's important to remember because up to now there's been a lot of discussion about loyalty about conflict of interest but the people I represent are frontline first-level managers they have nothing to do with collective bargaining the people I represent do not have the power to hire or to fire but they do have a certain power of supervision absolutely and let's uh, remember that supervisors in some provinces are unionized that's the case in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and it is also the case under the Canada Labor Code supervisors are not excluded from union certification so if you make an analogy in Quebec the fact that frontline managers and I'm not talking about managers in general but frontline managers such as those I am representing the fact that they can have access to union to unions and be represented means that in my opinion the issue of loyalty and conflict of interest are not really an issue because they have very restricted power but even if they're part of a different bargaining unit practically speaking if one bargaining unit gets a raise then the other unit will will also ask for a raise yes but I wonder in the case at bar how does that have an effect because they have nothing to do with collective bargaining they would be a group that would negotiate with the employer but I have a really hard time understanding why there would be a lack of loyalty or a problem in terms of loyalty if they don't take part in the negotiations yes but it could affect their duty of loyalty in the way they supervise other employees I would argue that under 2088 in the Quebec Civil Code loyalty applies to all employees all categories of employees and I believe that that argument is uh, a protection to ensure that people who become uh, managers maintain their duty of loyalty I don't see why the fact that people getting together would lead to a problem in terms of loyalty in the application for certification the other your friend argued that 12 section 12 also posed a problem section 12 says that anyone acting on behalf of the employer cannot dominate fund or work within a workers association in other words the labor code is 
a whole code and there's a fine balance even if you're talking about the fact that they're very low down in terms of uh, of uh, of the manager's ladder the managerial ladder i understand what you're arguing to that effect yes but section 12 doesn't only apply to interference and to representatives of the employer it's no person acting for the employer would will try to dominate or interfere and no person who is a member of an association I understand it is a whole yes it is a whole and your friends are saying that this architecture depends on this difference this distinction between employees and people even at the bottom of the ladder who exert some kind of managerial power that's the fear here because once again not to minimize the issues that uh, the supervisors are experiencing that's not my point here but if we take a an axe to one L then anyone who has a managerial position whether it's high or low will be affected by this court's decision that's our worry I understand the concern and I'll try to continue along the same lines by reminding you that we're not here asking to have paragraph L struck down as unconstitutional. We're not trying for a blanket uh, striking down of that exclusion. I would understand the dilemma before you if we were arguing uh, uh, on behalf of not just frontline managers but also the VP of Lotto Quebec. So we're not asking you to declare all managers in Quebec, of course, of course not. So that's why we're asking, is there a more targeted remedy available? Well, the more targeted remedy, once again, I respectfully submit, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, it appears to us that if at every turn, whenever there's a potential violation of Section 2D, I have to go to an ordinary court, I think that in itself is an interference with the freedom of association. If you look at it in a different light, because so far I've been trying to convince you that it's the issue of substantial interference, but if you were to rule that it's Bayer and Dunmore that should apply those tests, well then, in the alternative, are we not in a situation that requires a positive intervention by the state under the circumstances, given the situation in which people have been asking for years just to be recognized and just to have the power to bargain. 
so they could do the job that their association members have asked them to do. Is this not a demonstration of the limits of the current regime? Because the very lowest level managers, the frontline managers, are going unrepresented, they're excluded. If they were not excluded by 1L, they would certainly come under the labor code. They are workers, essentially. They are employees, essentially. And if you're saying that you could have done something else, you could have looked at other alternative remedies, this is premature, this uh, request to have the provision, uh, the exclusion struck down. Well, is this not putting us in the buyer situation? Justice Cote, you've been asking this from the very beginning. Are you asking for access to a particular regime or are you just asking to have our freedom of association respected? Now, I know that it looks like we're seeking access to a specific regime or a specific scheme, but the Superior Court judge in dealing with that issue, she found that the association was not seeking access to a specific scheme. They were just seeking respect for their fundamental freedom to associate. And I would refer you to paragraph 94 of the Superior Court decision. She says he, she's responding to the Attorney General and the Casino Corporation's argument that the, our association was seeking access to a specific scheme or regime. And in paragraph 94, she says, the court thinks you have to go beyond the, the specific wording used and look at this case as a whole in order to determine whether the association is seeking access to a specific scheme or rather seeking respect for a charter protected right. Because they mention the labor code does not mean that they are specifically seeking uh, access to that particular regime. The question is whether the association is claiming a constitutional right or access to a specific regime, regime. and whether, including the right to collectively bargain. That freedom exists independently of the labor code. And it's my submission that that is precisely the case here. Obviously, the procedural mechanism that would send a message is a particular labor code uh, mechanism. But when you look at everything that happened before the application for accreditation occurred in 2010, when you look at the long list of exhibits before the that were put before the labor tribunal tri, tribunal when you look at all the efforts that were made internationally uh, and domestically all the unsuccessful efforts that were made 
there's a good governance guide that does not apply to our members. And so in 2010, they decided to go this route. Maybe it's not the right route procedurally, but what were they supposed to do? Would they still be around today if they'd given up every time Lotto Quebec and the Casino Corporation had slammed the door in their faces? Well, they might have had to go back to the courts many times, but they didn't even go once. And the remedial powers under Section 24.1 and 49 of the Quebec Charter, they're very broad remedial powers. The court can order whatever compensation it deems fair under the circumstances. They could even issue an injunction, in my view, to force people to return to the bargaining table. These are very broad powers the courts have under the Charter. Yes, but each and every time you would have to demonstrate on the evidence what does 2D cover? What does it give you access to? What is a substantial interference? That would have to be proven every time they went back to the courts. And I believe the Labour Tribunal hearings lasted nine days. Would you have to do that every time you went back to the courts with a charter complaint? Whenever there was inaction, whenever recommendations weren't followed, would my association have to go back and argue this case over and over again every time? It's my submission that once again, there's no precedent. That's never been done before. If there were other precedents that showed that, was a possibility. I might be more comfortable and I might have, I might be saying today that, yeah, maybe we should have tried that because others have, but others haven't. It has never happened before. It's, I understand what the court is saying, but it, it's hard for me. It's speculative. Unlike Fraser, because in Fraser, what Justice LeBelle was critical of in that case was that legislation was challenged after Dunmore. Justice LeBelle said that no effort was made, no attempt was made. There was a specialized tribunal that workers could turn to if they felt the employer was not respecting their obligation to bargain in good faith. And that was not done. And they criticized the remedy in advance. So I can understand because when, where the remedy is available, but now we're being asked to break new ground and attempt a novel remedy that's never been attempted before. It's my submission that that's a lot to ask of an association that the employer refuses to even recognize. We know clearly, the evidence shows clearly that there's been a lack of respect for my association in this case.
I have a question about the Court of Appeal decision. The Court of Appeal restored the Labour Tribunal's decision, but suspended its application for 12 months. But the Tribunal could not strike down legislation respecting all managers, just your clients. So what's the effect or the impact of the Court of Appeals decision? Is it truly a declaration of unconstitutionality under Section 52 of the Charter? Or is it simply a finding that applies to your clients alone? for the frontline casino managers. Justice, it's a bit unusual, that Court of Appeal finding. It's a bit strange, with all due respect. That's not what we even asked for. It's not what we're asking for here today. If you look at the Labour Tribunal's findings, their finding was that the, the exclusion was null and void and called the parties to address the accreditation application. So if we weren't here today, we would be back before the Labour, Labour Tribunal and perhaps my clients would be accredited today. Who knows? But the Court of Appeal chose, given the impact, the potential impact, or the general impact, at least that's how I see it. It says at paragraph 86, when you analyze the situation in isolation, the remedy ap appears fair. But the Court of Appeal added, the ramifications of this decision go beyond the circumstances of this specific case. So the Court of Appeal appeared somewhat uneasy in simply referring the matter back to the Tribunal. And in paragraph 189, the Court of Appeal says, in the case at bar, considering the potential effects on the Quebec labor relations scheme, the Court finds it appropriate to suspend the striking down of the provision for 12 months. So it's my understanding that in light of the Court of Appeals apprehension that this could have a broader impact than simply on this one case, the Court of Appeal preferred to leave the National Assembly the, the time it would need to decide whether the code should be amended or whether other legislation should be drafted. That's my understanding. I don't know if that answers your question, Justice. Yes, and I see also that in your relief sought, it's completely different. Yes, from, from what we're, what the relief we sought is completely different. So you're looking for the relief as you put it in your factum. Yes, we ask you to restore the Labour Tribunal's decision which could lead your court to simply confirm that there should not have been any uh, intervention. And in 
what you submitted to the Court of Appeal, which I have here, you simply asked to have the Labor Tribunal's decision restored and for costs. So did the Court of Appeal go too far? Well, uh, I would hesitate to go any further. I would simply say that that is not the relief we were seeking before the Court of Appeal. Council, the reasons for the Court of Appeal's decision are partially based on the recommendations of the the International Labor, Labor Organization, the ILO. C'est-à-dire l'Assemblée Nationale du Québec to approve the following recommendation that the government amend the Labor Code of Quebec in order that managerial personnel, c'est une catégorie générale, enjoy the rights flowing, flowing from the general provisions of collective labor law. So from that perspective, it would seem to me that the Court of Appeal based its decision, or that part of it, on a more general foundation. I fully understand what you're saying, Justice Rowe, and that was the recommendation that the Labour Code should be amended. That was the recommendation. And uh, as I anticipated, and probably for the better, uh, I didn't follow my outline of arguments, but uh, I'm finished. So, yes, you did a great job. The court is now going to take its lunch break and we'll come back at 1.45. La Cour, the court. Merci, veuillez vous asseoir. Thank you. Please be seated. Andrew Montag Reynold. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm here today representing the National Police Commissioners, uh, Commissioned Officers Professional Association, uh, who represent commissioned officers in the RCMP. Uh, their members are currently excluded from collective bargaining under the Federal Public Service Labor Relations Act, and they have uh, to date unsuccessfully been trying to bargain uh, with Treasury Board without any statutory protections. Given this, the court's decision today will undoubtedly affect the future of this organization. In our submissions, we intend to address one issue, which is the relationship between context and conflict uh, when looking at managerial exclusions. Specifically, throughout my friend's submissions, they suggest that there is an inherent conflict between management and employees that requires managerial exclusion. 
We are here to provide some context from both the policing and public service universe to say that this conflict does not necessarily flow from managerial bargaining. At the outset, we do acknowledge that at some point a line must be drawn between labor and capital. However, in our submission, a blanket ex exclusion across all workplaces or all managers that is devoid of specific workplace context infringes 2D protections. Related to this is my first point about the broader federal uh, public service, which there the bargaining relationship is significantly different than with the private sector. Uh, specifically, the adversarial party is generally not management even within your own department. Rather, it's Treasury Board and the government of the day who are accountable to taxpayers that often determine the terms and conditions of employment. Given this different bargaining relationship, where you draw the it, line it, it for managers... It isn't that it's often, it's always because the Treasury Board operates a common system across the whole government. The individual departments are not the employers. Yes, it, it, and that, that is my point. And so where, where you draw the line for exclusion to say there's a conflict becomes necessarily different in that context than it is in another with a private employer. Um, my second related point in the policing context, which is also within the public service, is in Wagner model regimes in Canada, there are examples of managerial bargaining that shows that it can and does work. And, and at paragraph eight of our written submissions, we point to Ontario, Alberta, and Manitoba as examples of Canada where senior officers bargain, but in a separate bargaining uh, unit from other employees. Uh, similarly in policing, large bargaining units uh, containing managers or people uh, exercising managerial functions is common. Uh, for example, in the RCMP, uh, where my clients' members work, uh, everyone under the rank of inspectors included in the bargaining unit, which includes detachment commanders. Uh, and de detachment commanders are responsible for supervision, scheduling, performance management, and importantly, discipline. Uh, under the CSO conduct, uh, detachment commanders can act as conduct authorities in the RCMP to administer discipline to other employees within the same bargaining unit. And one point I just want to note about policing is policing is inherently hierarchical. Members are expected and required to abide by rank, and nonetheless, unions are able to effectively manage their affairs at various levels. They're also required to report any incidents of misconduct from other members, and yet the unions are able to function. My final point related to uh, conflicts more generally is, uh, relates to two arguments about conflicts that have been raised by my friends. Uh, first is uh, the suggestion that a conflict uh, from managerial bargaining is cause for a disruption for unions or impairs the functioning of unions. Uh, in response, my first point is, it's important to note that unions manage conflict all the time. Uh, vertical conflict between different ranks is not the only form of conflict. There's horizontal conflict with members having vastly different interests that unions manage all the time. But secondly, is any claim that allowing managers to bargain will be detrimental to unions that comes from employers and governments is a dubious one. It's notable that none of the labor organizations appearing here today seem to share that same concern. My final point, uh, and it came up uh, in some of the questions earlier, um, is the various claims that placing managers uh, managers being able to bargain will place them in a conflict of interest because even if they're in their own bargaining unit, uh, employees' gains will necessarily improve their own working conditions and therefore create a conflict. 
uh, I note that this conflict exists whether or not managers are in a bargaining unit when they try to negotiate with their employer. Uh, even in the Attorney General of Quebec submissions, they admit at paragraph 84 uh, that manager pay is tied to pay increases by unionized employees. It's unclear why this is permissible and not a breach of their duties of loyalty to their employer for a manager to negotiate a loan, but suddenly a conflict if they do it collectively. And, and really, that is because the real concern from employers and governments today is not actually the conflict of negotiating to improve your terms and conditions of employment. It's the effectiveness of what <clears throat> it's done with others. Thank you very Subject, much. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Barrett. Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. I intended to focus my submissions on the positive negative rights issue, and I will uh, come to that. Um, but let me deal first with a question that has been the subject of much discussion and submissions, which is the question, where is the nexus? Where is the causal connection between uh, the legislative exclusion and uh, substantial interference with the constitutionally protected right to meaningfully collectively bargain? And uh, in, my, in my submission, uh, the factual and mixed fact and law findings of the expert Quebec Labour Tribunal, the TAT below, um, which in our submission is entitled to no less deference than would be owed to trial courts in cases such as Bedford or Carter, uh, th that tribunal found that the effect of the legislative exclusion was indeed to substantially interfere with the constitutionally protected right of the excluded employees in this case to engage in a, meaningfully, a meaningful collective bargaining process. And those factual findings, uh, which are set out uh, between paragraphs 295 and 402 of the tribunal decision are findings which answer that question and to which in our submission, this court ought to defer. Now turning to the positive negative uh, rights issue. Let me begin by emphasizing what has changed since this court's uh, decision in Dunmore. First, uh, this court has increasingly recognized the extent to which Section 2D protection for collective bargaining serves the underlying purpose of redressing the imbalance of power uh, 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 between individual employees and their employer. And uh, recognize that Section 2D can't be indifferent to that power imbalance, uh, and that recognition should shape this court's understanding of the inapplicability of the positive-negative rights distinction. Secondly, this court has now explicitly, in MPAO and SFL, tied Section 2D protection for collective bargaining and for the right to strike to redressing that uh, the pre-existing and inherent imbalance between individual employees and their employers. And I simply cite MPAO at paragraphs 58, 59, 69, 72, and 80, and SFL, paragraphs 56 and 94. Third, and as we set out in paragraph four of our factum, this court has now recognized and emphasized the extent to which governments across Canada have extensively structured and channeled collective bargaining through legislation so that access to collective bargaining legislation has become synonymous with and necessary for the instantiation of constitutionally protected associational bargaining and strike activity or as this 
court most recently put it in MPAO to the point where access to collective bargaining legislation has become, quote, the only vehicle available for meaningful collective bargaining. Now, in our submission, the effect of this evolution in the court's approach to Section 2D should lead to the recognition that separate and apart from the question of improper unconstitutional purpose, which we address in paragraphs uh, 13 to 18 of our factum, Section 2D is infringed when a group of employees is selectively targeted for exclusion from a legislative scheme that this court has recognized to be the only mechanism through which a process of true and meaningful collective bargaining can take place. And where the evidence is, as it is in the case at bar, that the effect of the exclusion is to substantially interfere with the capacity of those employees to engage in meaningful collective bargaining. And so we say that in that context, the distinction between a positive and negative rights claim is artificial. It obscures the reality recognized by this court that exclusion from access to whatever the legislature has established as the collective bargaining regime, uh, 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 as the virtually exclusive mechanism for being able to engage in meaningful bargaining, whether it's the Wagner model or some other model, is itself a direct legislative decision. It is action of the state and should be reviewed as such. Now, um, in, uh, finally on this issue, as we set out a paragraph seven and eight of our factum, both under international law, ILO protections, the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights and of the English Court of Appeal in the professional foster careers decision, all of these bodies, all of these courts, all of these instruments have unequivocally recognized and held that there should be no higher or different threshold for determining whether an exclusion uh, results in interference with protected associ associational activity than any other legislative measure. They do not apply any distinction in the labor and collective bargaining context between so-called negative or positive rights claims, as uh, as the uh, appellants would have Thank to do in much. this case. Thank you. Caroline Jones. Thank you very much. Our clients uh, are also excluded from the comprehensive statutory labor relations scheme in place in Ontario, and we are intending today in our submissions to focus in on the right to strike and. Uh, the um, Supreme Court's jurisprudence coming out of SaskFed in terms of its implications in the context of this case. But like my friend from the CLC, we see here the um, repeated reference to the, the casino corporation as the problematic employer uh, in tension with the exclusion of these employees from the, the labor code. And what we see in terms of the right to strike is an absolute absence of any ability to exercise a meaningful right to strike as contemplated by SaskFed when the uh, legislature, legislature pardon me, has chosen to occupy the field with the labor code but excluded these casino uh, frontline managers from its application. And so looking briefly at SaskFed, we see that uh, there is uh, an understanding of striking as something that is a uniquely collective action. It is fundamental to collective bargaining. 
and it cannot be uh, exercised in an individual manner, but only on a collective basis. And so through that collective action, employees are able to refuse uh, or change imposed terms and conditions. And you'll see that particularly at pages 280 and 281 of SaskFed. So in the uh, case at hand, our friends uh, who objected to the changes in their parking arrangements uh, would have the ability at impasse to address the kinds of workplace conditions, whether they're parking arrangements or wages, in a meaningful way through strike action or another constitutionally compliant uh, uh, manner. And I, I want to just pick up also on a theme we heard uh, a fair bit this morning in respect of the Wagnerization of, of 2D. Um, there is an uh, both a suggestion that the Wagner Act is not a default or a necessary model. There's no right to the Wagner Act, and we agree with that submission. But we heard from a number of the parties this morning that the um, right to strike or that the rights that are being sought by the uh, respondents are rights that flow through the Wagner Act model and are um, not incorporated into, into 2D because of that. But in this case, um, we know that uh, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that the right to strike is not simply uh, an element of the Wagner model, and you'll see that in SaskFed at pay paragraph 46, but also in Chief Justice uh, Dixon's dissent in the Alberta reference. And because the ACSQC could not address the power imbalance between themselves and their employer, because of their exclusion from the statutory framework surrounding the right to strike, the power imbalance remained in place. And as the TAT stated, the employer always had the last word. So the managers could only achieve what the employer was willing to give because there was no countervailing tool, whether it was the right to strike or a different constitutionally compliant uh, model. In um, the Quebec Attorney General's reply submissions, they look to um, the uh, inability of an employer to terminate a striking employee, or if they did, uh, the ability of those striking employees to pursue 2D or charter code applications. And I do want to just pick up on that. That analysis doesn't grapple with the uh, actual concept of striking at the front end. That is, as we set out in our uh, factum, there is no common law ability to strike. So these employees who have a 2D right to strike in accordance with this court's uh, findings in SaskFed, lose that ability because of their exclusion from the labor code. So they cannot access uh, any <clears throat> meaningful uh, rights in terms of the ability to uh, influence the balance of power at their uh, bargaining table. And this highly individualized right that's left at common law, which is nothing more than a right to quit, is really no right at all um, and strips employees of their employment, their compensation, and as uh, Chief Justice Dixon described it, their self-worth, their identity, and their emotional well-being. Thank you very much. Thank you. Andrew Astridis. 
Uh, good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, the Public Service Alliance of Canada will focus its submissions today on two issues. First, in determining the effect of a statutory exclusion, there was no basis to apply the elevated threshold from City of Toronto to the Section 2D cases. And we highlight three reasons for that. First, this court in MPAO categorically rejected the notion that Fraser had established a threshold of, of effective impossibility. As none of the parties in this proceeding are seeking to overturn MPAO, this ruling requires the rejection of the analogous thresholds of radically frustrating or effectively precluding yet the appellants call for in this case. Second, applying the City of Toronto threshold to Section 2D would ignore fundamental differences between expression and associational rights. Positive rights claims under Section 2B generally seek access to a specific platform. For this reason, this court has rejected those claims on the basis that the claimant could still express themselves given the broad scope of expressive rights through other means. This consideration would have been dealt with at the first stage of the Bayer test. And in fact, it is what drives the higher threshold that we ultimately see in the city of Toronto case. The situation for associational rights is vastly different. Claimants typically do not insist on a particular regime, but as Dunmore noted, some form of legislative protection to deal with their vulnerability. For this reason, while substantial interference may be rare in the expression context, some form of legislative protection will regularly, if not presumptively, be required in the labor context. This court has repeatedly recognized the vulnerability of workers in virtually all facets of the employment relationship. There is also a close link between the fundamental purpose of associational freedom, which in, a worker, which in the employment context is to redress structural imbalances between workers and employers, and the need for some form of state action. Finally, the expanded scope of Section 2D and the express recognition of a right to collectively bargain, which includes requiring good faith engagement by third parties who are otherwise more powerful than workers, will regularly require some form of state action or framework to make meaningful and consistent. Justice Jamal, you raised a question about the relationship between the bear test and substantial, and <clears throat> substantial interference. Regardless of whether the bear test is applied, the threshold for substantial interference ought to be the same, uh, and it will not be high. The first step in the Bayer test simply acknowledges that <clears throat> claimants are not entitled to a particular model of labor relations. And in the present case, all levels of court were satisfied that this step was met. We also include a number of cases uh, dealing with exclusions under Section 2D at footnote 28 of our factum, and these cases demonstrate that the third test in Bayer is also routinely addressed quickly in the associational context. And that in fact, it is largely redundant once you already have a finding of substantial interference. I wanna close this point by noting that although Dunmore established the substantial interference threshold in the context of, positive, of a case that had a positive rights component, the substantial interference test has since been applied to all section 2D cases. If this court departs from the unified approach that it has taken till this point in Section 2D and applies an elevated threshold for a so-called positive rights case, there would be no principled 
um, there'd be no principled basis to continue to require claimants in negative rights cases, such as health services, to demonstrate substantial interference as opposed to non-trivial interference, which applies elsewhere in Section 2. The second submission I want to make is that the evidence, if the evidence in the case shows that the rights of an excluded group are substantially interfered with, any justification for that, for that interference must be dealt with at Section 1. The fact that a category of workers has historically been excluded from the Wagner model cannot justify finding that there is no violation of Section 2D. And the problem with dealing with these kinds of issues at Section 2D rather than Section 1 is that it prevents less impairing alternatives from being considered. That might be labor boards, regular the fact that labor boards regularly reject the dichotomy between managers and employees, uh, and they deal with these issues through adjustments to bargaining unit structures, or it might be the possibility of an alternative labor relations regime altogether been, being put in place for a particular set of workers, if that is what's required. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Catherine Fan. Thank you, Chief Justice. I and my colleague, Danielle Glatt, represent the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. My submissions address the issue of what's the threshold that excluded workers have to meet in cases like the one before this court. Is it the ordinary test threshold under MPAO, or is it some different higher threshold because it's a quote unquote positive rights claim? And my submission is really this, that there is one test to establish a breach of section 2D, and that there's no reason to endorse a different and more onerous test for cases like the one before this court. You have heard today from interveners, from the interveners that this court's decision has implications for excluded workers across this country, most of whom are actually governed by the common law of employment. The appellants asked this court to hold that the state shouldn't have a positive obligation to promote freedom of association unless there are truly exceptional circumstances. And my response is that placing workers outside of collective bargaining legislation means more than just failing to protect their freedom of association. It means imposing an alternative model of workplace labor relations that gives the employer the right to vice suppress Vice presidents of a company are employees. Would you say that vice presidents of a company should be permitted to uh, collectively bargain? The challenge to this court is, is indeed to the broad managerial exception, um, but the facts before this court are whether or not frontline supervisors should be able to collective bar collectively bargain. And are not the, the implications, are not the implications of what you're saying that everybody in the organization who is an employee should be able to collectively bargain? My submission is that for some employees, it will be very difficult for them to collectively bargain without protective legislation, and that the reason it is difficult isn't because they have bad employers, but because it is the law make that makes them it difficult for them to collectively bargain. And I think a couple of examples would be helpful in this regard. This court has consistently acknowledged on several occasions, from Pepsi-Cola to AI Enterprises, and the CCLA agrees that the common law is and has historically been hostile to workers organizing. There are a number of examples set out at paragraph 13 of our factum, but some are as follows. The employer has the right to exclude organizers from their property. They have the right to fire their workers for talking to union organizers. They have the right to fire their workers for going on strike. And they have the right to seek damages and an injunction against anybody trying to organize their employees to go on strike. 
my submission is that when these are the ground rules that apply to excluded workers, it's not surprising that workers either can't organize together collectively or they don't see the point in trying. They have a chilling effect on associational activity that doesn't depend on every employer being a bad employer. They are daunting to any worker who understands their rights and obligations at law. And my argument doesn't depend on the court accepting that each one of these rules individually substantially interferes with collective bargaining. The point is just that the common law system of employment or the background system of common law and statutory rules or the civil code as the case may be, places obstacles to workers organizing, making representations to their employers, bargaining in good faith, resolving bargaining impasses and enforcing deals achieved at the bargaining table. It is critical to understand the impact of statutory exclusions with reference to the background rules that would otherwise apply because it answers the question why does the charter require that this government intervene? It's not just because there are bad employers, but it's because the law makes workers vulnerable to their employers in a systematic way. Just because there are third party employers who are involved in interfering with associational activity doesn't undermine the causal link between the state of the law and the situation that the work that workers find themselves in. And that's that's set out in this court's decision in Dunmore at paragraph 26 of that decision. The CCLA's position is that the distinction between positive and negative rights claims is difficult to draw in the workplace context, if not impossible. And it isn't relevant after this decisions, this court's decisions in the 2015 labor trilogy. The common law and the civil code system of workplace labor relations bears no resemblance to a meaningful process of collective bargaining in that it concentrates power in the hands of the employers, which is the antithesis of what this court described in MPAO um, as, as the section 2D requiring striking a reasonable balance between the interests of employers and employees. And our position is ultimately that workers shouldn't have to clear some extraordinary threshold in order to escape its orbit. Barring any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Maître Claude Tardif. Bonjour. Good afternoon. Our intervention is unique because it's a concrete illustration of the past 50 years and the fact that it's been impossible for our engineers to collectively bargain and that this is on account of our exclusion from the labor code. So this has been the situation for 50 years and a legislative amendment was necessary. So this implies that the legislator recognized that there was a need it also implies that there can be a community of interests between a manager and a worker depending on their level of authority and their position in the hierarchy and they can even this can happen in the same bargaining unit so the our unions experience was before the TAT and the Court of Appeal and it was found that relations between Hydro-Quebec and the engineers had been fruitful and had led 
to the conclusion of an agreement that was beneficial both for workers and managers. Given the revolution in the freedom of association in recent years, we can see that the grouping of engineers at Hydro-Quebec is not uh, an anomaly. It's actually an indication of the vision of the Quebec legislator. There were uh, legislative measures that never came to light and the Court of Appeal referred to excerpts from parliamentary proceedings and it was said that th there was a desire to avoid sending engineers back to the law of the jungle. So the, there when based on what occurred in our case when you talk about freedom of, ex of association where people would have to negotiate their very recognition it becomes a bit like trying to negotiate your freedom to negotiate it doesn't really make sense so there's no better illustration than what the legislator did in our case this is an accreditation that works and the legislator never had to intervene so the hesitation here seems to be about a supposedly about a conflict of interest or divided loyalties but the idea here is to promote negotiation and fair bargaining power so the presumption seems to be that a unionized worker uh, uh, can't be loyal because they're unionized but we've been doing this for 50 years at Hydro-Quebec so it's our submission to this court that there are factual situations similar to the engineers at Hydro-Quebec that make it possible to conclude that there's not necessarily a conflict of interest in this type of situation and what is, what is meant by conflict of interest? Basically, a bargaining unit is supposed to bring together people who have a community of interests, common interests, and that situation should be left up to the specialized decision makers to decide whether there is or there isn't a conflict of interest in rather, rather than having a blanket exclusion. So we've been around for 50 years. There's no demonstration that there were problems with conflicts of interest or what have you and as people say the proof is in the pudding we've been the perfect illustration that this works so it's a bit hard to say that people should be excluded from the get-go from the possibility of unionizing at least not in the case of Hydro-Quebec thank you Pierre Brun Chief Justice Justices to round out all the arguments you've heard so far. On behalf of the association we represent, we'd like to repeat two points, and that is who benefits from the right? First of all, when it comes to who benefits, 
the freedom of association under 2D applies to everyone without distinction, including incorporated persons. So any limits on that freedom uh, operates a major change to the freedom itself. And the right to associate includes the right to bargain collectively. And any limit would be hazardous given the nature and characteristics of the employment situation. And the situation changes from place to place. So we submit that in this case, which has to do with first frontline managers, you should resist the temptation to restrict the right to freely associate and collectively bargain. There should be a broad and generous interpretation of the charter and any limits should come under section 1, under the justification provision. Not only would this be a way that, a way of proceeding that respects the architecture of the charter, but it also would provide sufficient flexibility to be sensitive to the needs and circumstances of particular cases. In our view, a blanket exclusion from any labor relations regime would be very hard, if not impossible, to justify, given the substantial nature of the right at issue. The intrinsic nature and historic uh, situation when it comes to collective bargaining require, in our view, in a modern society, requires a certain amount of guidelines and protection. There have to be limits, otherwise it's just wishful thinking as opposed to effective and real rights. And a legal vacuum is a fiction, in our view. If the state puts no restrictions on people's contracting freedom. Well, that's simply false. In Quebec with the labor code, uh, with common law rules, the contractual relations in, in labor and employment law are already clearly established and they apply broadly and they've been around for a long time. The fact is that the applicable legal regime that applies to individuals run, actually discourage collective action, collective bargaining. And historically, there's been an inequality of bargaining power. It's been an asymmetrical situation. And the most of the managers we represent here today do not have the unilateral power, or at the mercy of their employers' unilateral decisions regarding their working conditions. And I would refer you to paragraph 7 and 42 of our factum in that regard. So it's a default application of rules of law that apply to individual employment situations, but a collective exercise of this right requires some form of protection. And there are many other models other than the Wagner Act model. My friend would refer to intermediary resources. There's the uh, artists 
act and so on. So ignoring that would be, would make the state complicit in the interference with the right to, to bargain. And I would just wrap up on remedies. There's a paradox here. Freedom of association does not provide any procedural rights or any right to any particular scheme. Uh, so to go to court to ask for these substantive rights to be put into practice creates a bizarre paradox where the applicants have to create a, a, a regime, uh, fashion a regime of their own, and that is not the way the law works, should, should work. Thank you. Chief Justices, Chief Justice, Chief Justices, Justices, Claire intervenes to highlight the persuasive and significant role that international law plays in understanding the contours of a charter right. Now, you're, me... you're, you're, you're very much more definite than that in your written submissions. I'm going to read one part of one sentence from paragraph 23. Under international law, managerial employees have the same right to organize as non-managerial employees. Now, almost every, if not every, piece of labor legislation in this country excludes those performing managerial functions. Is it not directly, does it not directly follow from the proposition you're putting to us that every single one of those pieces of legislation is invalid, it's unconstitutional? The whole thing is wiped off from one end of the country to the other. Does that ne not necessarily follow from your saying that under international law, managerial employees have the same rights to organize. Thanks for that question, Mr. Justice. Um, I just want to very, make very clear our position, which is that international law plays a fundamental role in interpreting the charter, but it's not the final say. And the findings of the CFA and other ILO treaty bodies and conventions, the body of international law has a very special relationship with charter analysis, but again, it's not the final say. And I'm actually going to quote from the Quebec number case um, in referencing the presumption of conformity, which this court first recognized all the way back in the Alberta reference labor case and was affirmed in Slate. You'll find it under tab two of our condensed book. And in the number case, the Quebec number case, this court called the presumption of conformity, um, that is that, international, that the charter affords the same protections at least as great as those in international human rights documents to be, quote, a firmly established interpretive principle in charter interpretation. And so I really welcome that question because I do wanna make clear that we're not saying that international law is the final word. It certainly is not, and that um, ultimately it's this court that has the final word on that, what that is, is that is that is generous of you. But beyond that, what I think that the court was getting at, and I do have some understanding of the reasons in that case, was that Canada's treaty obligations inform uh, the Charter. That didn't say that the ILO, giving their view of something, constitutes international law. Does the ILO make international law, or do you find the international law in the treaties which Canada has ratified? So what I would say is the courts 
had some discussion on that, for example, in BC Health Services, which is found under tab four, the court describes the interpretations of the ILO's Committee on Freedom of Association to be, quote, the cornerstone of the international law on trade union freedom and collective bargaining. And while not binding, they shed light on the scope of Section 2D of the Charter as it was intended to apply to collective bargaining. And so I think it's been quite clear. And we're not forging a new path. Again, this has been the trajectory of the court's use of international law and pronouncements from the CFA on understanding the contours of Section 2D. And um, earlier, when I was referencing uh, the Quebec number case, this court said that the charter forms part of the historical context of a charter right and illuminates the way it was framed. And further, you know, if we look at Fraser under tab seven, the court goes as far to say the charter rights must be interpreted in light of Canadian values and Canada's international and human rights commitment. So I'm, I'm merely just referencing decisions that have already been made. And in order for us to have integrity in this approach, um, because of the special relationship that the charter draws from international law, when the framers were contemplating the charter, they looked to these conventions, which Canada has ratified, which predate um, our charter. And in terms of the, of the analogy of the living tree, um, there is an understanding that the development of labor law specifically, or not labor law, but Section 2D law, is working alongside these decisions, the body of decisions. And in this case, very quickly, if I can finish, with the CFA's particular decision on the facts before it, um, we say that there should be deference, at least in the understanding that that tribunal has found there to be a breach. Under, under international law and specifically Convention 87, and as such should be a signpost to us as to whether there has been a breach of the Charter. While not binding, it is a very persuasive indication of a breach. And Thank subject you. to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Hello, I will be focusing that def difference uh, has to do with uh, findings of mixed uh, fact and law. My main argument is uh, that uh, the presumption of uh, reasonableness in la vigueur is not uh, refuted when it comes to mixed uh, conclusions. Vavilov teaches us that correctness applies to certain questions of law, including constitutional questions. I also argue that deference to mixed findings does not harm these principles. What do you make of West Coast Energy, where we said that when it comes to mixed findings, deference was uh, important, but that in the case of mixed uh, findings, it was more difficult to say that deference uh, should apply. Yes, well, in, in fact, in that case, it was a practical issue. So in paragraph 40, it says that uh, the expertise of the administrative tribunal is the expert that these uh, 
tribunals are better positioned to decide on these issues and that there's a requirement for a certain type of tr legal training. This court uh, rejected that in Martin in 2003 and gave uh, tribunals a role, a specific role in applying the Charter and that is why I believe it is possible to set aside West Coast and refer to the Vavilov framework. My submission is that the rule of law is not breached because constitutional principles can be pronounced in a definitive manner and that doesn't mean that we cannot apply correctness for mixed findings of fact and law. And I draw a parallel with facts where judicial review has to do with a charter question without it having be a constitutional issue. In that type of scenario, we have learned that if the administrative decider apply uh, interprets the scope of the charter, then we apply the standard of correctness. We will apply reasonableness if the decider applied the charter to the facts before the tribunal. In other words, if it's a question of mixed fact and law, reasonableness will be uh, applied in review. So deference in uh, cases of mixed fact and law is already recognized in cases, in charter cases. I would also suggest that for uniformity, correctness should also apply to mixed uh, findings when an administrative decider decides whether a legislative provision should be declared inoperative in the case before the tribunal. We must take into account that a tribunal cannot declare a law to be null and void and is limited to applying the law to the parties before the tribunal. In what circumstances should correctness apply? I think it should be applied in the creation of the applicable test. So in questions of mixed fact and law, deference should apply in part to ensure that there's uniformity across the board and also because it, there's no danger to the rule of law if uh, we afford deference to administrative tribunals in questions of mixed fact and law. Thank you. Reply. Regarding the last question, I'd like to note that uh, correctness is it's interesting because in Vavilov, the court confirms that it is a correctness that applies and the court refers to West Coast Energy. So I think 
the message in West Coast Energy when it comes to mixed questions of fact and law? Well, correctness applies. The court refers to Dunmore and West Coast Energy. And so I think uh, that uh, that is what we should follow. With uh, your permission, permission, I will give uh, my time to uh, the Attorney General of Quebec. Uh, we've already negotiated a good bottle of uh, Bourgogne for afterwards. Maybe I gave in too easily when it comes to that bottle of wine. We'll talk about it later. When it comes to the standard of revision, the reason why a constitutional issue has to be decided according to correctness is because of the importance of the issue that touches all jurisdictions within Canada. To be frank, I can't understand how it's possible to distinguish between the legal test that we choose to apply in a question of mixed fact and law and the question at law. I find it very difficult to understand that. What the TAT did was consider that managers at uh, the Casino Corporation should have a framework that resembles the Wagner framework. So they looked at the law, they said there's no equivalent framework for them, so there's a constitutional problem. But if you look at, at the facts, that is not what a Wagner-type framework actually does. The objective is to provide a uh, a forum for people to pr pursue common objectives. Now, moving on to international law. My friend uh, Ms. Cloutier talked about persuasive strength, persuasive weight. Now, this is a specific issue in the realm of freedom of association and in health services the scope of international instruments was not measured and was not applied to the realities of Canada. You said in Toronto that international instruments must exist within a historical context which is the context here of Canada. It's important to adapt the instruments to reflect the context and that is not what the court did in health services. If we continue in tab 8 of uh, the condensed book of my friend. You will find a, a decision 
I would ask you to turn to paragraph 465, which is on page 37 of my friend's condensed book. Now, I would just note that uh, they are not necessarily experts when it comes to constitutional issues. Associations and of their right to bargain collectively, the committee notes that under the current system, the complainant associations do enjoy a real form of recognition by their respective employers and participate in the elaboration of their members' employment conditions. That is the constitutional test under 2D, and the committee concluded that, but believes it should exist within a much wider context. But that is not the Canadian model, that is the international convention model. Third point I want to discuss. My friends used the word threshold. The threshold remains the same. It is the threshold of substantial interference. Was substantial interference caused by the state or by some other party? But no matter, the threshold stays the same. The Dunmore Bayer test is has the goal of determining, determining what the cause of the substantial interference is. The trilogy, which culminates in Aigle, is the very foundation of all of this. 2B, 2D, the state has a duty not to interfere. So as long as the state does not interfere, then what is the burden that must be met to show, to link this interference to the state? That is what is described in Dunmore and Bayer. The state has to tolerate, encourage, organize actively the substantial interference and the evidence that you have in this case does not bear that out. It's the contrary. And I'd like to come back to what uh, my friend Council uh, Tardif said when it comes to the speak. The Engineers Association at Hydro-Quebec was voluntarily recognized and it was maintained by the legislator. So if that isn't a hint that there isn't some kind of overarching purpose to discourage managers from associating, then I don't know what it is. The state maintained this association thanks to a law to that effect. Now, there's a lot of discussion about bargaining and allowing managers to enter into that, but labor law doesn't only have to do with collective bargaining. The labor code 
exists to manage conflict. When everything is going, when everything works well, there's no application. It, it, it's not necessary. Quebec is one of the rare jurisdiction that has established legislation against strike breakers. And the objective was to weigh the rights of everybody and reach a balance, allowing managers to benefit from all of the rights within the labor code will certainly challenge this balance. I thought I could use my friend's time. Well, according to the time, your time is almost up. All right. Well, in that case, uh, I will conclude very quickly. The Court of Appeals conclusion is somewhat atypical. The TAT had declared it inoperative and the Court of Appeals suspended the effect of that declaration. So that's rather atypical and it explains this by saying that the declaration of inoperability would have a snowball effect and that is why the Court of Appeal stayed that because I believe firmly that in that the objective here was not to create a certification under the labor code. The objective was to find a different solution and that is why there was a stay. The response needed to come from the legislator. Thank you very much. Thank you to all council. The court will take the case under advisement.